to episode 174 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, it's the big one, as Scott and I will be revealing our individual lists for the top for our top 10 favorite films of the year that was, 2021. Scott, how are you doing? If you had to give a high-level view on the year 2021 in film, uh, what would you have to say? Man, 2021, I think we were a little nervous at the start of the year because like things it seemed like things were getting better and then Delta happened and we're like movies were starting to get delayed again. Like I remember when they they pushed some of the summer movies back, movies went to Disney Plus, things like that. There were all these experiments. I was a little concerned that 2021, not that it would have been I mean, it's so it's so different because right? like the best movies of each year we still really love. I feel like, but it's like that deeper down the list or 2020, I think faltered a little bit. Like once you got sat out of outside of our top 10, 15, 20, it was a little bit harder to find things that we loved. And so I was a little worried that it was going to be like that this year. But, and I think this has been a slow realization, maybe ever since the New York Film Festival for me, where I saw a bunch of these sort of, you know, year end movies, if, if you will. Man, I think this year has been amazing. I think this year in, in movies has been absolutely awesome. You know, when I was going through and finalizing my list, uh, last night, the last couple of days, I was looking through and I'm like, you know, I put my top 20 up against any other top 20 we've done, certainly. And not that it would necessarily be not 2019, but it's a lot closer to 2019 than I thought it would be at the beginning of the year. And I think just in general, it's been like a year of a lot of changes. Like I've moved to New York. We've both gone to film festivals now. Um, just mm-hmm. I feel like the way that that we've consumed movies has changed a lot in what is now four full years. I know I talked about it last week, but this is the actual anniversary of our of our podcast because this is usually the Golden Globes weekend instead of talking about this. And I think it's funny to look back and not just see how the podcast has changed, but also just see how we, the movies we watch, how we watch them, everything has changed. And part of that's the pandemic, part of that's evolution over time of this probably. But 2021 has been a great year of that. And I'm excited to uh, start to celebrate the movies of 2021 with this podcast. And then whenever we do our Some Like It's Got Awards as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there were a lot of expectations going into this year because so much stuff had gotten pushed to this year. And, you know, again, coming into the year, we were like, wow, this year is going to be loaded, right? There's going to be two or three big films every weekend, it seems like. Um, But I think, yeah, I think the progression, honestly, it it played out like a typical year where, you know, halfway through, maybe even like we get to the fall and I'm kind of like, okay, I mean, there's been, you know, four or five great movies uh, but it's been just all right so far. You know, I think the summer in particular had some disappointing movies for me um, in mm-hmm. terms of the blockbusters. Um, but then, you know, again, I think you just had to come to expect this um, because the prestige movies, the awards movies, the stuff that does usually wind up high on our lists um, tend to come out near the end of the year. By the time we got to the end of the year, um, you know, it, it absolutely has turned into a year where you know you can go to through 30 movies on my list and i will tell you i love all of those 30 movies um and yeah getting to go to the film festival was 
was definitely really cool too. you know, first time doing that, like you said. Um, and it just ended up being a perfect experience because not only, you know, was the festival really just really well run and everything, you know, about the festival experience couldn't have been better, but the six movies that I chose to, to see were all fantastic. And I will definitely be talking about multiple of them today. So um, that definitely added to my experience for 2021 in film. So yeah, at, at the end of the day, uh, you know, as we're reflecting on the year, I think it lived up to the potential that we felt like this year had coming into it, I think, with all, you know, with, you know, as many movies as we knew were going to be coming out, maybe not in the way that we thought it was going to, right? Like maybe some of the movies that we were looking forward to didn't turn out to be, you know, what we wanted from them. Um, I can think of at least a couple examples like that for me. Um, and, you know, maybe certainly I'm sure some of our favorite films that we're going to be talking about today were not things that we had on our radar coming Certainly. into the year, not films that got pushed over from last year or anything like that. They're just, you know, legitimate 2021 releases. Um, so, you know, I think uh, I think it's been a great year. Um, a lot of surprises, you know, some disappointments. But, um, you know, it was it was a typical year in movies, which after last year is is really what I wanted. Um, and so I'm excited to to dive into it today and, uh, and talk about our lists with you, Scott. This is always a lot of fun to do because um, you know, we watch all these movies, um, good and bad. Um, we talk about all of them. We spend, you know, hours um, and hours every year doing this. And this is kind of, I look at it as, as our reward for, um, you know, spending all those hours, putting all that time in, like I said, is um, getting to talk and gush one more time about the stuff that we really, really loved from this year. Yeah, it's, it's always fun. I mean, we'd also do this in like a month or two from now when we actually do our most anticipated list of the coming year. But it's always fun this time of year to look back at what you had on your most anticipated list uh, from the previous year. And Scott, I'm willing to wager that not a single one of the movies you have on this list made it into your top. Definitely not your top 10 and maybe not even your top 20. Um, some of them didn't come out this year. You had Apollo 10 and a half and The Northman at your one and two. But mm -hmm. then Old, Last Letter from Your Lover. Um Power of the Dog was on your list. So maybe maybe that yeah. slips in, maybe that doesn't. Um, and that was your top five. And you know, I had Dear Evan Hansen, which was a movie I didn't even bother seeing on my top five list. Um, but then I had Dune, Mission Impossible 7, Womp Womp, House of Gucci, and don't look at why did I put that on my list? Oh my god. That's, uh, what do you mean? <laughs> why did you put it on there? You can't back out of this now. You are looking forward to the movie. Uh I, I was. No, I would stand by that I was looking forward to the movie. I mean, how could yeah. I not look forward to a Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence Brooks? I mean, that is I mean, that is the two actors for me. Like put them in a movie. Mm -hmm. and, like that's I want to see that instantly. But I think even by the middle of the year, I had hesitations about it. And especially once any House conversation of, started. I about forgot it you had House of Gucci on your list, too. That's interesting. Well, Adam Driver is one of my favorite actors, and I was yeah, really excited yeah. by Lady Gaga and and um and the, A Star Is Born from a couple of years ago. I think mm -hmm. that's an easily defensible one, but it didn't quite play. Oh, out sure, sure. How I how I wanted it. Um, it, it will not be a spoiler to tell everyone that it is not in my top twenty. Uh, I will not be talking about it on this episode. <laughs> but maybe you will. Well, Scott. Uh, no, not quite. But uh. Yeah. Bummer. Instead of, you know, spoiling everything up front, well, why don't we just go ahead and get into it? And Scott, before we get to all the good, um, we always like to take a moment just to talk about our pick for the worst film of the year. You know, yeah. some people tend to poo-poo worst lists and everything nowadays and say, what's the value of this? Um, I think, you know, number one, 
we had to sit through the, these movies, so we might as well get something out of it, which is talking about it on this. And number two, yeah. I see it as a public service as, you know, look, the people out there might still be interested in some of these movies, and um, we need to let you know that you do not need to be wasting X amount of time that we already wasted on them. Um, so, Scott, why don't you get us started with your pick for the absolute bottom of the barrel, the worst film you saw in 2021? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about, like, we had to sit through these movies and so we have to do this public service now. I'm particularly mad about this one, Scott, because there's a special story behind this movie that we were going to do this movie for the podcast. Oh, yeah. And I watched this two and a half hour film, this 150 pluser uh, for the podcast. And like literally like 30 minutes after I finished the movie, you're like, yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to see it. I think we need to pivot and talk about something else. And that movie is the Russo brothers directed uh, Tom Holland starring I, I guess drama about PTSD and addiction um, called Cherry. And that film is awful, just straight misery for 150 minutes. And as we go through my top 10 list today, you'll see that I am someone who can can get on board with some misery in movies. I like uh, difficult, dramatic material in my films, especially when they're done well. But I just think the Russo brothers didn't quite know what to do with this story uh, about this college dropout who becomes an army medic during the war in Iraq. You know, he has this really traumatic, uh, I guess, series of events. I'm, I'm sure pretty much every soldier who's fighting in, in any war is having, and it's not like he's a unique in that respect, but he's scarred by what happens in Iraq. He comes back and he becomes a drug addict. And from there, it is just, it's, I mean, it's got, it's just utter misery for the next hour, 45 minutes um, with no real, it's, it's one of those films where I can't look back on it and say that I understood the point other than addiction, addiction, bad. Um, and, you know, addiction, bad, Scott. But yeah. I knew that already. I didn't need to watch Cherry bad. to learn that. Yeah. <laughs> Cheney bad and uh, climate change bad, too, while we're at it. But yeah, that, that's my worst film for um, 2021. Yeah, I, I mean, if you want to blame me, that's fine. Scott, I do kind of have a feeling that you probably would have watched the movie anyway, just because the Russo brothers, Tom Holland, it feels like something you might have just thrown on anyway. Uh, but, you know, Maybe. hindsight is It's 150 years. minutes, though, man. It's a long movie. <laughs> yeah, I, sure. I mean, you've seen a, a, a few long movies multiple times this year, so. Um, yeah, so, but, yeah. you know. I mean, that's fair, but this film wasn't getting good reviews. It was not like I'm an outlier on how. Again, I'm just trying to defend reviewed. myself a little bit here. But ultimately, I'm not sorry that I, I didn't end up seeing the film. Uh, yeah. Speaking of which, Scott, uh, my pick for the worst film of the year is a film that you did not see. Um, and, which we also know, almost said on the podcast. Yeah, you've already alluded to it uh, today. And I want to say before I you know say talk about this movie. I always struggle a little bit with picking the worst film of the year because it's like what, you know, I can go straight to the bottom of my list and look at what I ranked last. And but that's usually not that's not necessarily the worst overall film. Sometimes usually it's the worst experience that I had with the film. That doesn't mean that every single aspect of the film is a complete failure. Um, like The Woman in the Window is probably the worst film that I saw this year, like just objectively speaking. Um and then there's, you know, movies that are just like really disappointing. And so I had, you know, I just had a really terrible time watching Last Night in Soho, for example, because that was one of, you know, my most anticipated movies a couple of years ago when it was supposed to come out. Um, and it was it was a disaster. Um, Annette was another movie that I was really looking forward to and just fell apart. Um, 
But in terms of the absolute worst experience I had watching a movie in 2021 and in m many other years, uh, you already mentioned it, Scott, Dear Evan Hansen um, is even worse than advertised. Um, that That's the thing. You know, I, I this I think the whole experience of watching this movie has really changed my perspective on like, oh, I'm going to go watch this bad movie for the bit. Right. Because I knew that Dear Evan Hansen was going to be bad by the time I went to see it. Um, I'd seen the reviews, you know, Ben Platt in the trailer, all that jazz. Um, but I was like, oh, well, I'll go watch it. It'll be funny. You know, maybe it'll be like a camp classic, whatever. I had a straight up terrible time watching this movie. Um, and, you know, again, I, I think there were a few movies that might you could you know, you could say were worse movies. Like, I think there are a few things about Dear Evan Hansen that are not objectively awful. I think that um, Caitlin Deaver and Amy Adams are giving really good supporting performances in the movie. Um, I think not all of the music is terrible. Um, you know, there are some songs that I can tolerate. But where this movie crashes and burns is in its storytelling and its direction, I think, in particular. Um, the way that Stephen Chbosky, who directed the movie, decides to treat the material. And, and you know, not to hide the ball, but it's it's based on a Broadway musical, obviously. Um, and so some of that could have come from the musical itself. I'm not, you know, as familiar with the musical. But, yeah, basically, you know, this is the story of a kid uh, named Evan Hansen, who's played by Ben Platt. Um, and he, uh, this kid named Connor basically is kind of a bully to him. And as a therapeutic exercise, Evan writes a letter from Connor's perspective. Uh, then Connor ends up killing himself and um, the letter is discovered. They think it's from Connor because it's discovered on Connor's person. Connor takes it away from Evan and just really a really ridiculous scene. But again, it's, an, it's a letter basically that Evan wrote to himself as a therapeutic exercise. And, you know, what happens is everyone begins to think that Evan and Connor were secretly friends, including Connor's family, who, again, is Amy Adams and Caitlin Deaver. Uh, Evan decides to keep up the lie and to basically just gaslight this entire family into thinking that he um, was indeed a friend of their son when, you know, the opposite was kind of true um, and makes up all these stories about his friendship with the son, with Connor. Um, and. Yeah, and, and I'm saying this all, and this is the hero of the film, the protagonist of the film that I'm talking about here, the person who does all of this awful, irredeemable stuff. And look, Scott, 2021 was definitely a year in which we saw a lot of movies, very good movies about irredeemable main characters. The problem is this movie completely lets Evan off of the hook for his deplorable actions. Um, we are supposed to forgive him in the end when I do not believe that he deserves forgiveness. This is the kind of movie basically where the only satisfying ending for me would be to see Evan in complete ruin at the end of the movie. And the opposite of that ends up happening. Um, so I just think that what this movie says is kind of shocking i think the way again the way it lets its main character off the hook is shocking this the sensitive subject material that it takes uh takes on and really cheapens i think with this you know faux inspirational music that is just like trying to tell you how to feel at every um every stretch um i just really felt awful after seeing this movie and i regretted deeply uh you know, saying that I was going to just going to go see it for the bit. So um, it's an example of why, why I won't watch something like Don't Look Up now, um, because 
you know, I don't think there's any fun to be had probably with the experience of don't look up. And there was certainly no fun to be had with the experience of watching Dear Evan Hansen. So, yeah, I got to just pile on there and say that was my worst film of the year for sure. Well, it's fitting that neither one of us can talk about the movie um, to the, the other the other's yeah. choice that we at least stayed away from, you know, the mistakes that one of us made. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right way to put it or not. Um, yeah, look, there's there was there was some contenders this year. We both saw a lot of movies. Um, there were some bad ones. I think we could probably have a shared worst movie in Woman in the Window. That's also in like my bottom three or four movies of the year. Just what I a forgot time. you actually did watch it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I watched it before you actually. Because I was I was texting you. you did, like, yeah. Gonna, it's going to be the the, tr- the twist in that movie at the very end is just. I don't know what he was doing, but yeah, you know, there were bad blockbusters as well. I mean, I hated Eternals. I did not like F9 at all. Um, Godzilla versus Kong was pretty bad. In my opinion, Jungle Cruise was not at all what I wanted it to be. Halloween Kills was another movie that I would say was definitely a disappointment after how good the 2018 Halloween was. So, um, yeah, a lot of movies that really let me down, but just nothing came so so uh, close to matching the emptiness in my soul that I felt after watching uh, Dear Evan Hansen. So there you have it. Scott, we can put all the bad behind us now, though, and uh, and move on to the good stuff. Uh, I want to note at this point that, you know, usually on this episode in the past, we have had guests who join us to also reveal their top 10 lists. Um, we've had the host of Purely Nostalgia, Clinton Eli, before. Um, last year we had Paulo Yama and Aaron Jay joining us for the best, uh, films of the year. Um, this year it's just Scott and I, uh, who are here revealing our entire lists. However, um, we did reach out to some of our former guests on our show and some other friends of the, the podcast, um, to send us in some clips for their best movie of the year, just their number one pick, or a couple of people chose two films, which is fine. Um, and we are going to be scattering those throughout the show, um, you know, just to sort of offer some other perspectives again on that friends of the podcast had on their picks for the best films of the year. So in a minute, we're going to be revealing our 11 through our picks for 11 through 20. Um, but first, uh, to, before we get to Scott's 11 through 20, um, you're going to hear a clip from, I already mentioned him, Mr. Eli Smith, uh, host of the now defunct podcast, sadly, uh, purely nostalgia. Uh, he is going to be giving his film, his, uh, number one film of the year, uh, which also happens to be in Scott's 11 through 20. So here's Eli. Hello, Scott's Eli Smith here to share a few words about my number one movie of 2021, which is a little film called the matrix resurrections. Um, I love this movie so much. I did go in a little biased seeing as the first Matrix movie is quite possibly my favorite movie, period. And so I've been excited about this movie ever since they first announced that Lana Wachowski would be returning to write and direct it. Because I'm a huge Wachowski fan, never thought that they would ever want to make another Matrix movie after the general reaction to the other sequels. And so the fact that we got one of them back for this new movie had me really, really excited. Um, So obviously a ton of what I love about this movie has to do with its relationship to the franchise as a whole, but... I still think that it is a fantastic movie in itself, and when I sit down and think about what movie this year I love the most, I think I would be lying if I said anything other than The Matrix Resurrections. So I've seen it twice now. I'm dying to see it again. Um, It feels so thoughtful and so deeply personal to Lana Wachowski while still feeling like a big, fun Matrix movie, and I think that that was a tough needle to thread. Um, It's very meta in an extremely not subtle way, which is something that can 
often annoy me in movies, but I think it works really well here because it doesn't come across as cynical. Like there's definitely a lot of cynicism in the early parts of the movie um, without spoiling anything, but it ends up in such a sincere and hopeful and pointedly not cynical place by the end of the movie that it just had me feeling so, so happy when I left the theater both times that I saw it. Um, it's got some amazing performances. Keanu and Carrie on Moss are both so great and they get some really juicy scenes together, um, that they totally show up for. Um, and I thought Jonathan Groff was amazing as the new over the top villain that we've come to expect in these movies. Uh, anyway, that, that's enough about that. I know it's gotten very mixed reviews. Um, so if you haven't seen it, give it a chance. It's really great. Thanks guys. All right, there you have it. Eli's number one pick of the year. I already spoiled it, uh, that it is in Scott's 11 through 20. Uh, and in fact, I think it might be right at the top of the list. So why don't you get into your 20 through 11? Let's hit the movie, Scott, real quick that just missed your top 10. Yeah, you know, we, we went back and forth about this briefly last night. I think we're both going to end up having like a tie for one of our 11 through 20 places. Yeah. Mine, just because I they, they were already sort of right next to each other in my list of movies um, from 2021. One of them actually being in my top 20, the other just outside. And I thought, you know, these are thematically related, I think. And we talked about both these movies on the podcast. And so my number 20 is a tie between... Eli's The Matrix Matrix Resurrections. Uh, it was a movie I really enjoyed very much and was a different take on the whole notion of legacy sequels, reboots, franchise resets, things like that, with sort of the polar opposite of that with Spider-Man No Way Home, uh, two movies that I loved for pretty much opposite reasons, I'd say, <laughs> uh, funnily enough. Yeah. Uh, but that is that. those two are my number 20. My number 19 is actually a film that I don't believe you've seen, Scott, mainly because you didn't catch it at Sundance, and I'm not sure it's even been released yet. And that is a documentary called All Light Everywhere, directed by Theo Anthony, who has done a, a, another documentary or two before in the past. But he has a very, I don't know, he has a style of his of his documentary that I just really appreciated. It's almost like sort of scientific experiment. He's really interested, I think, in science and portraying it, you know, on in in documentary format. And he has this really I don't know, just sort of captivating way of unfolding his narrative, his documentary narrative. And so it's just something, it's an experience that I really appreciated. It's one that I've thought about sporadically, you know, probably every month at some point since seeing it way back in January. And, you know, I thought about revisiting it. I don't even know. Again, I'm not even sure it's been possible to revisit, but it's one that I might want to catch again sometime down the road just to see how a second viewing, when you know how he is sort of laying out his story, if it, if it does bring sort of new insights, but that's a fun, a, a fun documentary. And, and at least insofar as it is different, I think for a lot of how a lot, a lot of other documentaries and how they're told. My number 18 is the worst person in the world and a foreign film from this year directed by, um, Yo yeah, Joaquin Trier. Uh, is it, is it da Danish film? I think is where he's Norwegian, from. Norwegian. Yeah. Norwegian. Okay. Uh, well, I was wrong about that, but we'll move on from it. Uh, Renata Reinsva. I'm not sure if I pronounce her name correctly. I think when I That's saw this, correct, film the, yeah. yeah, when I saw this film at the New York Film Festival, just sort of gave me the biggest Dakota Johnson vibes I've ever seen in my life, and just gives an incredibly strong performance as the sort of lead character, uh, Yuli or Yulia. I think so. I think it's just Julie, isn't it? I think there's Julie. Yeah. No idea. yeah, yeah, yeah. And her sort of odyssey discovering 
you know, what love means to her, how to be a partner to to another person and, and what relationships look like for her. And I think it's just a really um, interesting story. Uh, there's one memory in particular that sticks out to it is this notion of <clears throat> that the film tells you up front, it's going to be like 12 chapters and a prologue and an epilogue. I'm like, man, <laughs> what a weird move to say your movie has 14 parts to it at the beginning of the film. I just, I just found that so funny for whatever reason, but I'm really glad that I caught this at the New York film festival. And it's the kind of movie that I watched this film. And even though I had some qualms with it, which is, you know, why it's not higher on my list. The fact that you just really, it, I just feel like everything, all the emotions just really pop off the screen. And I sort of knew instantly that, you know, you, for example, um, Paulo Yama, friend of the pod, I just knew that you guys and the kind of movies that you really appreciate, you guys were going to absolutely love this movie. Um, so no idea whether it ends up in your in your list today, but I know you did have the chance to catch it right at the end of the year uh, before we did our list. So excited to to hear your thoughts on that. My number 17 is the Kenneth Branagh black and white film from this year, Belfast. We did a whole podcast on this, so I don't want to spend too much time talking about it. But it's a film that it just felt like d unique this year in its open heartedness. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say unique because I think there are another movie or two that were that were similarly open hearted this year. And I just really appreciated that. I thought it was just a really genuine film. It's not a perfect movie, but I just found so much to love about about the film. And I think it just came at the right time where where that's kind of what I feel like I needed you know, when, when the weekend that I saw that when I saw Belfast. And so I really appreciated it for that. Really liked that movie. Number 16 is The Rescue, which is the follow-up documentary from the filmmaking pair Elizabeth Chai Vassarheli and Jimmy Chin, who are Oscar winners for Free Solo a few years back about the rescue of uh, in Thailand of a soccer team, a youth soccer team that was trapped in a set of caves. And just an, an overwhelming feat to have this to, to have this rescue mission go, I don't want to necessarily say smoothly, but go as well as it did. And the fact that they were able to not only get interviews with everyone who, who they did interview, but also how they were able to obtain footage that literally no one else has ever been able to get their hands on um, because it was so closely guarded by the Thai government. But the fact that they were able to build relationships to get the, that, that, um, you know, that, that really intense, I'd say, uh, film and clips from the rescue operation is powerful. This is on Disney Plus. If you have not seen it and you're at all interested in the story, it's way more incredible than I think you even realize right now. And that it really sheds a light on how difficult the operation was and how spectacular it was at the end of the day. Number 15 is one of two Ryusuke Hamaguchi films from this year. It is Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which is an omnibus um, series of short films all around, all built around the central theme of how past relationships continue to affect people years into the future. Um, it's about primarily about the, the female perspective on this. Uh, the three main characters are three different women who have all had past relations, who basically are put into situations where past relationships um, come back around and affect their lives in ways or, or are shown to continuously affect their lives over time. And I found it really powerful. I saw this one at the film, New York Film Festival, his other film from this year. I was not able to catch at the festival, but the fact that they were both there. I'd never heard of this him before. He has Asako 1 and 2, which is probably his most famous film before this year um, that I had never heard of. But then this film just sort of shone a light on him as a director for me and just had me almost like voraciously seeking out 
some of his other films. The fact that, you know, I saw Drive My Car as soon as I could after that, not at the festival. And the fact that I kind of just want to go watch all of his movies after seeing this, it, it just speaks to how powerful um, and how resonant a lot of the emotional themes of this film were. And I think it's just really spectacular, uh, spectacularly well done. Number 14, another documentary for me, Cusp, a movie out of Sundance that we both saw. Scott, it's a slice of life verite documentary about this trio of girls in the middle of nowhere, basically in Texas. It's real Americana piece of documentary filmmaking. Um, there's really just not that much to say about it except to just go watch it. It's just brutally authentic in really painful ways about these women's, these young women's experiences growing up. And I would just say, check it out as soon as you can. I'm not sure if it's even available yet. You were going to say something? Yeah, I was going to say, if you like Minding the Gap, um, this yeah. is basically Minding the Gap, but about girls. So that's, yeah. which obviously adds some new, you know, topics to talk about, particularly, you know, sexual assault and trauma and that type of stuff and how normalized it is and, you know, the environments that these girls are are in. Yeah. Um, so I think those are good companion pieces. I, if you like Minding the Gap a lot, then which I do, then I recommend Cusp as well. Yeah, I, I haven't seen Money the Gap, although it's top of my list. My understanding is Money the Gap is made by a filmmaker who was like actually a part of that community. Correct. Right? Yeah, Bing Lu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is a little bit different, but I think that, yeah, I haven't seen it, but it's a good shout out as a companion piece and in terms of filmmaking. And yeah, the one that you mentioned, the normalization of some of these things. I think that is the part that is most affecting about the documentary is just these things that it's just so easy for you and I or for you and other people or myself and other people to talk about is like these things are wrong these things are wrong. And then you actually go see how people are living their lives. And it's not as black and white in terms of stating, like stating things into existence and, and recognizing that and connecting dots between two, like a word and its definition almost. Um, yeah. it, it's just really fascinating. I think to see play out in real life. Number 13, um, <laughs> speaking of sexual assault, although this movie doesn't have sexual assault in it, I suppose not, not in a traditional sense, at least uh, red rocket is a Sean Baker film from this year. I think everyone was a consenting party to the extent that they're able to consent, I suppose. But uh, statutory rape, definitely probably a big question mark in this movie, uh, to say the least. Uh, problematic uh, characters, uh, front and for first, first and foremost in this film. You talked about how there are plenty of movies this year with problematic um, protagonists, so to speak. And I think Mikey Saber qualifies as, as one of those people from this year. Spectacular film. Uh, you know, I, I saw this at the New York Film Festival and... There were plenty of people who walked out in the middle of the screening. That's <laughs> and I and I kind of understand why, although I think that maybe they're they're doing themselves an injustice by walking out halfway through the movie or 30 or 45 minutes in the movie or, or whatever it might have been. Um, I'll leave it there because I suspect we might be talking about this film later on. Uh, number 12, Petite Maman. This is Celine Shiama's uh, latest film. I think her last film was Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which would have been on my top 10 list had we done that episode of the podcast at a time where I had seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire. But I saw this film also at the New York Film Festival. Kind of complete opposite um, tones, if that's the right word, to use for Portrait of a Lady on Fire, a film deeply about romance and you know these, these missed encounters almost where you have these moments in time that are fleeting and that you have to leave behind. There are still moments that are certainly fleeting in Petite Maman, but it is this really tight, like 72 minute film about a little girl going back to her like grandmother's home after she has died and their family packing up um, that house and, and moving it back to them. 
Uh, this is a French film. I should, I guess maybe I should have set that up front. And I don't want to spoil anything, but just some weird, almost supernatural type stuff happens in this film, but like not in the, what you typically think of. I think when you say supernatural, just something odd happens um, th that you're not quite sure if it was real or not. Um, and just emotionally tender, sincere. This is another open hearted film, I'd say. And and it was a breath of fresh air, just not only in its emotional themes, but in its uh, in its 72 minutes. I think the fact that you can tell such a such a heavy hitting story in 72 minutes. Um, some directors could learn from that, I think. Certainly. Anyway, and my number 11 to wrap things up, uh, talk about emotionally heavy films, um, Mass. It is the Fran Kranz uh, drama. Saw this at Sundance. You caught this more recently. Did you? You saw this at the film at the Virginia Film Festival, right? I did. Yes. Yeah. This is Fran Kranz. It's a four-hander. <laughs> There's four actors in this, um, who basically are the entire movie. It's Reed, Bernie, and Dow, Jason Isaacs, and Martha Plimpton, and they're all off the charts good in this film that is all about this this conversation. It is just people talking to each other about an impossible emotional trauma that they experienced, you know, five, four or five years. I forget how long it's actually been, but year, years, years before. And I was a little, I wasn't saying I was skeptical. I was, I was excited going in to see this movie because it felt like the kind of thing that I was like, you know, if this is done right, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna hit different and it hit different. It absolutely hit different. Um, it was done well. And I did not get the chance to rewatch this recently. So I haven't seen it since Sundance, but it's, it's absolutely stuck with me. Since Sundance, and I think it's one of those films that you just it teaches you to learn to appreciate and remind you to appreciate all sides of a story. Um, not that like there are good people or bad people on both sides type of thing, but just everyone has an emotional experience when it comes down to a situation, and that's worth considering. And I think that that is a very fascinating take on what is otherwise a really taboo subject. And I, I don't mean to hide the eight ball on this, that, that taboo subject is a school shooting that happened where one set of parents' child was the perpetrator of that violence and the other set was a victim of that violence and it's just emotionally powerful film. And that's it. That's my 20 through 11. All right, great pick, Scott. Uh, some movies I really loved in there. Uh, also some movies I really want to see like uh, Petite Maman and uh, the um, not the worst person in the world, Wheel of Fortune Fantasy, which I think I'm actually going to be able to see both of those relatively soon. So they're definitely high on my missed movies that I missed this year list. So yeah, I'm uh, excited for you to see them. Showing some love. Yeah. Um, all right, Scott, I do have my 20 through 11 ready. Uh, but first, we're going to have another clip from our friend Aaron Jay. He was on the pod last year with us for the best of 2020. And he uh, sent us in a clip to talk about two of his favorite movies of the year. Uh, so here's Aaron. What is up, Scott? Uh, back this year in a shorter form than last year, where I think we talked for about five hours about the 2020 movies. But uh, still happy to be a part of the show. Uh, top two uh, 2021 films for me. Very, very different. Uh, Titan is the first one. I have a feeling this will be a few people's. Um, just, I think, one of the most memorable singular movie theater experiences I've had in a long time. Um, I think there's a lot of really great themes that I don't really want to spoil here that are explored in the movie. Um, obviously, there's some 
interesting sequences with cars, but I think the dance sequences uh, in the movie particularly were a highlight for me. And then my other uh, top movie of the year, um, perhaps is my number one, is Little Fish. Uh, if you've talked to me at all, you know I probably brought up this movie and mentioned it. Um, Jack O'Connell, Olivia Cook, they absolutely carry this movie. It's a tragic love story, I'll say this. Uh, it is a pandemic movie, but not a movie. It was a movie made before the pandemic and about a very different type of pandemic. This one dealing with memory issues and uh, basically instant to slow oncoming dementia. And uh, yeah, just really hit a lot of good notes for me. Great movies, and I highly recommend both. Looking forward to hearing you guys' lists. All right. Thanks to Aaron for sending that in. Little Fish is a movie that, again, I was talking right beforehand about movies that I missed, um, you know, this year that I really wanted to fit in. Little Fish actually came out really, really early in the year, and it's kind of been on that list for me for a while. And I actually debated whether to watch it this week, but I wanted to just, like, keep my list where it was. And I have a feeling it could be something that I really enjoy just based on the subject matter. So um, that is one that I'm definitely going to check out probably pretty soon, uh, especially given Aaron's praise of it. So, Um, all right, Scott, my 20 through 11. Uh, I also have a tie in here. We'll get to that um, a little bit in a little bit. But we're starting with number 20, which is The Power of the Dog by Jane Campion. my only most anticipated movie of the year that ended up making my top 20. Um, Scott, I may not have fully connected with this movie like a lot of people had, but um, it's hard to deny. It's impossible to deny, at least for me, the the mastery of the filmmaking. Um, I love, you know, movies that show you rather than tell you what is going on. And The Power of the Dog is definitely one of those movies. Um, and you can definitely also say that about a lot of the performances in the cast, but especially uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, who's really um, spectacular um, in this lead role um, of Phil. And you you know, you know, don't really know what's going on with this performance until certain things start to be revealed. And once you do, um, you know, it just takes on a whole, a lot of new layers, which the entire film really does. It's even, again, even though it's not something I've been running out to rewatch, um, it has definitely sat with me. And I can't imagine someone watching this film and it not sitting with them. It's just that kind of movie. Um, so number 20, the power of the dog, uh, number 19, Aaron mentioned it there. His other favorite movie of the year, just your average movie about a serial killer who gets impregnated by a car and, uh, to evade the police, um, starts posing as the long missing child of a firefighter. Uh, that's Julia de Cornell's Titan. Um, the movie that I didn't know all those details about that film. That is, (laughs) that makes it even more crazy. All right, cool. Oh yeah. Uh, this is movie. It makes it even more crazy, right? Because this movie won the Palm Door, right? This was the the best film at the Cannes Fil- Film Festival this year. Um, I think did not Julia make the shortlist for the Oscars, though. It did not, and that is not a surprise. I think Julia de Cournau is a spectacular and exciting filmmaker. I loved her first movie, Raw. I think I like that movie even more than Titan. But um, yeah, these are not movies that that you can forget. Like arresting is definitely the first word that comes to mind. I said after watching Titan that this was probably the weirdest movie I have ever seen, and I, I think I probably stand by that. But I loved it. Um, as you know, Gonzo and. Um, unflinching as it is in sort of the body horror aspects of the movie um it is also strangely enough again i think this is dick Warnow's brilliance is there's a kind of a tender love story in here that is slowly develops over the course of the movie um not between a woman and a car um although there's 
you know, stuff there again. Uh, but yeah, it's very Cronenbergian, I guess. Um, and I just was, was mesmerized watching this, even as I was like horrified and like confused and just shocked at everything I was watching. Um, and also shout out to Agath Roussel and Vincent Lindon who give, um, amazing performances as the lead two characters in Titan. Um, all right, Scott, my number 18 is, uh, the Oscar winner from 2020 one the father um directed by florian zeller um just a really masterfully um crafted film about the effects of dementia on an elderly man played by anthony hopkins who won best actor um and how it affects the people in his orbit specifically his daughter played by olivia coleman um you know yeah another one of those movies that like it is not easy to watch at all um and that is why it comes in lower on my list um but if you ask me to to talk about it objectively talk about the filmmaking the performances the editing which is uh, so important i think to giving you the disorienting effect that this movie's going for um it's hard for me to to point out many flaws i think this is a, a spectacular movie and i hope that people will not dismiss it as boring oscar bait because i think that was the vibe that it kind of was giving off you know towards the tail end of last year early part of this year uh, uh tail end of 2020 early part of 2021 um but it is not that at all the movie absolutely earns you know any and all awards it was it, it took home at the the academy awards so i you know uh, high high praise high marks for the father for sure even though it's not an easy watch uh number 17 scott and definitely an easier watch of uh, the harder they fall uh, directed by james samuel um netflix black western um that is just super stylish super fun uh very tarantino-esque um has you know some some great set pieces in particular this sort of long set piece at the end um you know has some really creative choreography and gunplay and all this um you know fun stuff going on definitely had me cackling um regina king and zazzy beats have a great knockdown drag out fight that is definitely one of my favorite action scenes of the year um and the whole ensemble is as, as great as you would expect it has you know this sort of magnificent seven vibe to it um jonathan majors sort of leading the cast delroy lindo i mentioned zazzy beats they're kind of all on the hero side of things and then you know this great sort of troop of villains that includes idris elba lakeith stanfield and regina king um you know it, an amazing cast as you can tell and i think it's definitely one of the strongest ensembles of the year and one of the most fun movies um, that I watched this year. So definitely check this one out. It's right there on Netflix. Also right there on Netflix, Scott, my number 16, the movie we talked about last week on the podcast, The Lost Daughter uh, from uh, writer-director Maggie Gyllenhaal, um, direct, her directorial debut. Um, just really impressed with this movie, sort of operatic tale of motherhood. Uh, you know, I mentioned a lot of not easy movies to watch here. I think the the Lost Daughter falls in that camp too. Uh, it is uncompromising in the way that it depicts this main character of Lita, who is not necessarily an easy character to like, uh, but maybe an easy character to identify with, um, especially I think for for women and mothers. Um, I, the fact that I was able to you know get on her level at all, I think, speaks to the the strong the strength of the filmmaking because it's not a position that I've ever been in or or will be in the the position that Lita is in. Um, but Olivia Coleman is doing amazing work. Jesse Buckley, Dakota Johnson, you know, 
we just talked about it last week. It's a really strong cast. Go back and check out that episode and check out this movie because it's right there on Netflix, like I said, but I don't think enough people know, even maybe even know that it's there because just other movies are getting the limelight right now. So um, definitely give that one a watch. I saw it twice and it's it's great. Um, I think we're up to number 15 now, Scott, and that's West Side Story from Steven Spielberg. Um, somehow bettering the original film, in my opinion, um, with just this incredibly expansive cinematic um, you know, grand movie musical that just has those, you know, m moments that when we came into 2021, we really wanted the movies to give us because, you know, we kind of missed them in 2020 with not being in theaters that much. Um, and it's just one of those that will remind you why you love movies and why you love watching movies on the big screen. Um, you know, amazing choreography. Um, the music of West Side Story is is timeless and it remains so. Um, and a mostly really strong cast, including, you know, Rachel Ziegler, Mike Feist, um, Ariana DeBose, Rita Moreno. Um, I, you know, Spielberg is one of the one of the masters um, of mainstream crowd pleasing cinema. And this is definitely one of his best movies in a long time. So uh, high praise for West Side Story. Number 14, Scott, another movie musical. Um, you know, I think West Side Story might be the best movie musical we got this year, but my favorite is definitely In the Heights uh, from director John M. Chu, based on the Broadway musical by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Just a great sort of all vibe, no plot, all vibes musical, um, exploring the different stories of these characters in Washington Heights, this neighborhood in New York City. Um, you know, di great diverse cast, um, a lot of Latino actors and actresses, Corey Hawkins, who's African-American, sort of leading the cast. Um, and, you know, just just really, again, likable characters and community, you know, a, a sort of the sto story of community and um, being proud of where you came from and, um, you know, just friendship that you just want to kind of live in this world. You just want to be in this world for a little bit longer. Um, so In the Heights is is one I will definitely, I've seen twice and I will definitely rewatch probably over the years. Number 13, Scott, um, probably maybe the best movie about COVID or best piece of art we've gotten about COVID so far. Uh, Bo Burnham Inside, the Netflix special from the comedian and filmmaker. Um, he also, of course, directed, wrote, performed, uh, the entire thing. It's a one-man show, basically, that he recorded from his home. Um, it kind of has all these different sketches about depression and living in isolation and just sort of how COVID affects all that. Um, but it's a lot more fun to watch than I'm making it sound. Um, it has these great sort of theatrical songs, um, many of which have sort of transcended just outside of the movie and people just listen to them on Spotify. I mean, I'm certainly one of them. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's very, very funny. It's consistent with Bur the style of Burnham's other comedy. Um, if you, you know, if you're a fan of that and just, you know, solidifies to get him again as a, as a, a wonderful filmmaker. I think we saw it with eighth grade, which is a really assured directorial debut. Um, and again, he makes this cinematic, you know, some people will say this is a comedy special, but I, I don't want to have semantic debates. Um, I think that, um, the choices he is making um behind the camera uh you know show that this was in, always intended to be a cinematic film type experience i mean he's not performing to anyone right like he's he's performing from his home this was meant to be put on netflix for people to watch it wasn't a recorded performance so that's my my say on that but bo burnham inside is great 
Uh, number 12, Scott. This is my tie. Uh, it's two movies that um, are set in the same time period, uh, although maybe very distinct um, thematically and plot-wise. Uh, the medieval duo of The Green Knight from David Lowry and The Last Duel from Ridley Scott, two great movies set in medieval Europe. Again, very different movies. The Green Knight um, is about... Um, you know, this this night played by Dev Patel's um, battle with this mysterious figure um, and sort of his journey to meet the figure once again a year later and all of the sort of adventures that he gets into along the way, but definitely sort of unpacking the uh, Arthurian, you know, legends and the, you know, values that are so um are so important to you know that sort of era of the knights of the round table chivalry and um and all of that i think this movie has a lot to say about you know whether whether there's much to chivalry at all whether there's much value in chivalry and um dev patel's character again of gawain is a, is another morally ambiguous protagonist i think in a year full of them um and i think you know the real star of the movie though is david lowry just really really well made film you know, surreal, the atmosphere that he creates is hard to shake. Um, hallucinogenic would be another word for it. Um, and the Green Knight is is great and has maybe the best ending of a film this year, uh, in my opinion. Uh, and then The Last Duel, I'm just, I was just really impressed with this movie, which takes on a very difficult subject matter. Um, again, talking about Me Too and sexual assault. Um, but it does so, I think it's, it, it's able to do it without being ambiguous about you know, the truth, the messaging here, which I think is very important when you're when you have such sensitive subject matter. Um, it's very clear what the film's trying to say. And obviously it's on the right side of what it's trying to say. But also it's still a very nuanced film. Um, you know, the the Rashomon style structure, I think, helps with this and um, the subtle variations that we see on the story and on each actor's performance really um, are, you know, they're subtle, but they're meaningful. Um, and I think that's something that's hard to do, again, to make a, a movie that has very clear messaging, but is also very nuanced in the way that that messaging is presented. Uh, and I think The Last Duel managed to pull that off. Um, and Ridley Scott, and in particular, I think his writing team of Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and Nicole Holof Center deserves a lot of credit for knocking it out of the park. Finally, Scott, number 11, uh, the best blockbuster of the year. It's Dune um, from Denis Villeneuve. Uh, I didn't know anything about Dune going in. I certainly wasn't a Dune fan or anything. Um, so I wondered how easy would this be for me to, to connect with. Um, pretty easy, Scott. Uh, the, the spectacle on display here is, is hard to deny. And, you know, even though I am a person who generally values the emotions and the story and the characters over technical spectacle i think this is just one of those i said it at the time but this is a movie where you feel like you're seeing the medium of film used in ways differently than you've ever seen it before and um that spectacle is is so revolutionary that i think even though the story is black i mean i've seen people criticizing the movie for saying oh well the story there's no heart in the story the story's lacking blah blah, blah. i mean it's part one of the story right like i i think if you understand that uh you'll understand why um, the movie maybe isn't some emotional tour de force. I don't even know if, if Dune is going to end up that way uh, anyway. But um, I, I, I think it. I'm, yeah, I, I am willing to forgive some of the 
withdrawnness of the the emotion in the film um because i understand that there's a larger story going on here we're probably gonna learn a lot more about these characters as we go along um and there was still enough there to keep me entertained when the spectacle wasn't going on so um an amazing experience maybe the theater experience of 2021 watching dune and it says a lot that it couldn't even make it into my top 10. all right scott uh let's do it then we've done our 20 through 11s we've done our worst movies nothing else to do now except to get into our top 10 we'll start with you sir what's your number 10 film of 2021 all right roll up the sleeves here we go uh got a curveball for you at number 10 i don't think that you would have guessed this one on my list mainly because you likely have forgotten it uh all the way back from the end of january um since i don't think you had the chance to see it either at sundance uh it's a documentary called try harder uh, this is directed by Debbie Lum, I believe is how you pronounce her last name. And it sheds a light, a particular light on a high school, a, a very um, elite, although public, competitive private or competitive high school um, called Lowell, Lowell High School in San Francisco. And it is this documentary all about the college admissions process, basically, and how difficult it is for even the most elite of the elite students um, to get into their dream schools. And I just found this to be just so sort of revealing and shedding a light on some experiences that I had felt not not to the same extent, of course, but putting a lot of pressure on myself to get into schools that I that I wanted to go to, you know, in the second, you know, the second half of high school and junior and senior year and, and trying to do everything I could to get into, you know, my dream school. And not necessarily that how competitive it, it was at a core level between myself and other members of my class, but just like how hard I had to work and how hard I had to try to be the best. And yes, that is naturally or, or preternaturally, like it has to be something relative to other people in your high school. And the fact that that is, you know, ratcheted up to like, you know, 15 or 20 out of 10 um, all the time at the school in particular just felt like a real there, there was just some real truth to a certain type of high school experience that isn't often portrayed in films. I mean, there's so many coming of age sort of hangout high school films. I mean, Booksmart just a couple of years ago, a movie that I love. You know, that was not my high school experience. Um, and I think not to say that my high school experience was try harder either, but I just felt like I was seen in a lot of ways by this film with the relationships that that these students have with particular teachers. Um, that even sort of transcend the notion of being a teacher, but transcend into being a mentor for these for these students. I just found it in a particularly personal story um, that had a lot of relevance and emotional heft behind it. And it's one of those films it was my favorite film out of Sundance. And it's one of those films that just stuck with me since then um, at a festival where, you know, a handful of movies stuck with me. You know, I've talked about some of those films already in my 20 through 11. And this was this was the one that that did so more than any other film. And this is a film that was just outside my top 10 list. Um, it was actually my number 11 before last night. And I swapped it with Mass, another film from Sundance, um, just because I think that this one has stuck with me even more and admittedly is a little bit different than, than most of the other movies on our list. And so I thought it was worth including. But that's my number 10. Yeah, Scott, I remember you talking about this one after Sundance, and it's definitely one of the ones you watch that I'm most interested in just because of the subject matter. You know, obviously, I went through the, the college admissions process as well. Um, yeah. We did. I wasn't time, the only so. one, I promise. 
<laughs> yes, I'm sure there are insights to be gained from this. I just don't think there's a way for me to see it right now um, that I'm aware of. So yeah, um, that might be the case. Yeah. Um, but hopefully, you know, it gets, uh, gets distributed or goes on streaming or something soon. So I'm sure, um, yeah, that would be, that would be good, but all right, Scott, moving on to my number 10, we've already talked about it a lot. It's mass. Um, it's the movie that you pushed, uh, for try harder. Um, yeah, this movie, uh, was an experience. Um, I, I did see it at the Virginia film festival and it was just one of those theater experiences where you can really sense everyone in the theater was just really on the wavelength of this movie and was just really sort of moved by what was going on. Again, I think it's, it's hard not to, but I also think you need to watch this movie in a theater because it may, it doesn't scream out to you necessarily as something that, um, you know, that is super cinematic, right. That like has, uh, requires the big screen to appreciate because it is just four people in a room talking is pretty much all the movie. But I think, because of the subject matter and the seriousness of what's be, what's being discussed, you need something that's going to demand your complete attention. And, you know, I don't know how a lot of people watch movies at home, but I imagine it's a lot more distracting than seeing it in a theater. Um, and I think getting to see this in a theater, um, you know, if I had not gotten to see this in a theater, I don't know if it would have made my top 10, honestly, because, um, you know, it just giving full surrender to this movie is I think something it requires and something that helps me to appreciate it. Um, yeah, Scott already kind of described it. It's this sort of, uh, you know, again, forehander about these two, uh, couples, two groups of parents, um, who are reflecting on the school shooting several years later in which, you know, Scott, as Scott described it, you know, one of them, uh, one of their kids was the perpetrator and one was the victim, but you know, one of the discussions that the movie has is, what does the word victim mean right like um obviously you know uh, martha plimpton and jason isaac's son was killed in this shooting but is is the shooter when you you know when we really look at the facts of the situation um is he a victim in his own way as well um it's not an easy question right i don't think this movie asks easy questions because i don't think there are easy answers um to a situation like this right um and but I think that it's important that we understand that because I think it would be easy to look at something like a school shooting and say, hey, this is sort of a morally black and white thing, um, you know, evil versus good um, and the movie. But the movie has a lot of empathy for even, you know, the people who aren't even the shooter who isn't there. Right. He he ends up dying as well in all of this and especially for the people that get left behind in all this and what, you know, is the impact that the social stigma, right? Like uh, on Ann Dowd and Reed Bernie, whose the child was the shooter. How does that affect them over the years, right? Um, you know, they they weren't the ones who pulled the trigger, obviously, but um, the, they're the ones who are left, right? They're the ones who are still alive. So they're the ones who draw the attention, who draw the scrutiny. And of course, there's internal conflict, you know, was something that they did uh, was it something that they did which caused this to happen? If they had done something differently, you know, would this have not happened? Um, and I think all that examination is, it's tough, but the way that the movie does it is really literate and emotional. Um, I think Fran Kranz uses the camera really well so that this isn't just, you know, a, a play. Like, who he chooses to put in the focus and when is, I think, very important to what the movie is doing. Um, and... 
yeah, I mean, that all four actors are at the absolute top of their game. Um, they all get sort of their individual moments to shine, and I think they take advantage of them. Um, you know, in particular, I think Ann Dowd is just a, a fantastic actress who has not gotten the credit that she has deserved for many years now. Um, and, you know, I, if this, I wish this movie were bigger because, you know, she would be getting the credit then, I think, because of how good she is. Um, but unfortunately, you know, this movie just kind of remained under the radar. Um, you know, it was on the festival circuit. I do believe it is available on VOD now. Um, in the last couple of weeks, it has come out on VOD. Um, but I really encourage people to check it out. Um, despite the heavy subject matter, I think it is a very fulfilling watch. Um, it is ultimately a, a movie about how you move on from these type of things, right? So I think there is some light at the end of the tunnel. There is some hope at the end of the tunnel at the end of this movie. Um, and yeah, again, really impressed with Fran Kranz as an actor, um, you know, making his directorial debut and how much um, he was able to get out of this material. Um, you know, just so many different threads explored here that I think are, are fascinating. So uh, I loved this movie um, and it moved me like maybe no other movie did this year. Um, and got to hear Martha Plimpton do a Q&A afterwards, which is cool. And um you could tell that the movie meant a lot to her. Um, just she got even emotional talking about it in the Q and A. Um, so it 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 feels like one of those movies where everyone who was involved with it, um, it's a small group of people that were involved with it, but was just very invested in doing this the right way. And I think all of that came out on the screen. So loved Matt. Yeah, I, I love this movie. I I, it, I always th when I'm making my list, I always think about recency bias in these lists, and I and I wonder if I'd seen Mass and. October is when you saw it or November. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if I, if it would be, if it would have broken my top 10 list. It's a question I asked myself. I didn't get a chance to rewatch it, but it's a great film. Like you said about Dune speaks to the quality of the year when I don't have it in my top 10 list. Cause I do think really, really highly of it. It is available on DOD. I think you can rent it pretty much anywhere. Um, Amazon, iTunes, wherever. Well, I would advise you listeners to do that if you have not checked this one out. And while you were right, talking, there, I, I did go actually and look at Try Harder. Strangely enough, you you can rent this thing specifically on YouTube. <laughs> I don't know why, huh, but you okay. can rent this specifically on YouTube. Um, so you can check. You could actually, I think it's like four bucks. It looks like a four buck rental. Um, you can check out Try Harder, that documentary that as my number ten of the year um, on YouTube. Okay, great. Well, I can check it out. So uh, I will I will try to do that. I will add that to the watch list. Uh, Scott, what's your number nine? My number nine, Scott, it was in your 11 through 20. It's not a surprise probably to you that it is on my list this year. And that is the James Samuels Black Western film that you mentioned already. The Harder They Fall. Th this was like my let's have a good time. I'm going to go over to someone's apartment or invite some people over to my place. We're going to throw this on the TV. and. We're just going to have a good time for two hours and 20 minutes. That's exactly what this film is. Jonathan Majors, he's having sort of just an, an incredible breakout series of years here. I mean, he sort of popped onto the screen a couple of years back, I think, in The Last Black Man in San Francisco as sort of the main supporting role. I don't know if, he if you would consider him a lead in that film or not, but he is like the brother uh, of the main character of the film. And I wouldn't say that I was completely enamored with him in that performance. But I feel like every single thing that I've seen him in since has just really captivated me. 
none I'd argue more so than this. I mean, he is so good as Nat Turner uh, in this film. You mentioned supporting performances from the likes of Zazie Beats from Delroy Lindo, who are part of that Nat the Nat Turner gang, which is you know the, the quote unquote good guys in this movie. But then there's also you know the villains, the people that they are fighting back against, and there is a very intricately woven narrative of how Nat Turner relates to the main villain in this movie. Um, it starts off, I think, as something that is really straightforward. This character, who is played by Idris Elba, uh, Rufus Buck, killed uh, Nat Turner's father and mother and scarred him by by um, slicing a cross into his forehead. And he's sort of just been on this sort of hunt for him since then. And that's sort of like the context of the movie and it throws you into it. And, and yes, the film is concerned with getting to the bottom of that plot thread. It's not like this is a plotless film, but more so than anything, this film is about having a good time. It's about vibes. Some of the, the way that James Samuels constructs the set pieces, um, employs music in the film um, to make things just seem really cool is spectacular. And yeah, those supporting performances, I, I mentioned the good guys, but yeah, Idris Elba as the villain with Lakeith Stanfield, who is just another young, uh, young black actor who is just off the charts for me right now. I mean, he's had a great year this year. It seems like he has a great year every year, honestly, but he has a particular scene in this film early on with where they are actually freeing, I guess, light spoiler for the first 40 minutes of The Heart of They Fall, but where he they the Rufus Buck gang is freeing Rufus Buck from prison. And he has a scene where he just, I mean, you cannot take your eyes off of this guy. Um, he's that good. And then Regina King's also um, in the mix there, as well, as you mentioned earlier, just phenomenal, well-crafted, incredibly stylish. And the kind of movie that I think I saw three times this year can totally see myself continue to watch that into the future. It was the movie that, you know, in terms of movies that I had just like, which are about having a purely good time, is the movie I see from this year, seeing myself watch over and over again in the future. Yeah, I totally uh, hear you there. It, it's a great time. It is definitely that type of movie. For me, there was another movie which fit that category for me, which we're going to talk about in, in a little bit. Um, but sure. I mean, look, it made my top, top 20. Um, I think the movie is a great time and definitely something I would throw on with friends, um, you know, just to just to enjoy it. Um, I think, yeah. you know, we're what we have already talked about a lot of heavy films and, you know, intense dramas <laughs> and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. And we're probably going to talk about more uh, before this show is over. But it is, you know, these movies are just as important too to keep us sane, I think, um, you know, getting yeah. to watch something that is as good of a time as this. Absolutely. And and I wouldn't I'd be remiss if I didn't mention some of the people deeper down the cast list who are maybe less name recognized, but just as good. But I think R.J. Seiler, Eddie Gathagy, um, Danielle, Danielle Deadweiler. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think these are people further down the cast list that are definitely worthy of, of praise and, and play prominent roles in, in the film. And so, yeah, just a great time. If you haven't seen this film yet and you're at all interested in the concept of or premise of what we just talked about, you're going to have a good time. And James Samuels being the music video guy for Jay-Z, uh, you understand where he gets maybe his style from. He, yeah. he is a first time film director, but he's not new to the art. Um, cer certainly not. And so really great time. I uh, got to see this on the big screen, actually, at the Paris 
uh, which is Netflix's theater here in New York City with Zazie Beats doing a Q&A afterwards. And longtime listeners of the podcast will know that I'm a big fan of Zazie Beats. Um, so that was a, a real pleasure. More to, to come. See. It, yeah, I, look, I mean, OK, sure. Yeah, there, there's another Zazie Beats movie to come for sure on this on this episode. But uh, it was really cool to see her talk about you talked about that particular fight scene at the end of the movie between her and Regina King. She talked a lot about that in the Q&A, which was really fascinating to hear. But that's it. Number nine. I'm done. Yeah, I just watched uh, episode three of Station Eleven before we recorded this, which is kind of this uh, self-contained episode about Danielle Deadweiler's character, and uh, she is doing heavyweight work in that episode. So definitely interested to see more from her. Um, all right, Scott, my number nine film of the year. You had it in your eleven through twenty as well. Uh, this is uh, the worst person in the world, the Norwegian film from Joachim Trier. Um, yeah, I didn't think I was going to be able to get this one in uh, until. Uh, you know, before we did this podcast, because it doesn't have like a wide-ish release until February. For that reason, I'm not going to say too much about it here, because I, you know, I know most people will have not seen it. But um, and I think we are actually going to try to do an episode about this movie mm -hmm. down the road, yeah. maybe, probably. We'll see. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to get away to watch this movie, and I didn't want to pass up the opportunity because, like, yeah, Scott, you, Paul, other people had been telling me that I would love it. Um, it was described in multiple reviews as the Norwegian Francis Ha, uh, Francis Ha being one of my favorite movies of all time. So um, obviously that was going to get me excited. Um, I think this is just a movie that it's hard for people like us, Scott, to not relate to because it is about somebody who is at a similar place in life as, as us, like age wise, at least, um, you know, she is um, Julie Renata Reinsva's character is turning 30 um and still trying to kind of figure it out right um she's a young adult but she is more the young part than she is the adult part uh even though she's you know about to turn 30 she's at this um point where she's feeling all this pressure right like she she should be um she should have it all together and you know she is early in the film she's dating this guy axel played by um Andrew, anders danielson lee who is really strong in the film as well um and she's sort of with some of their other like adult friends. They go away for like a weekend and it just kind of turns into this very disillusioning experience for her where she just doesn't feel like she fits in because everyone else, again, is kind of mannered. They have it all put together. They know where their life is going. Um, you know, they're married. They have kids, whatever. Um, and she is still dancing with abandon there's this dance scene at you know at the house where they are um where she just kind of is flailing around and ends up accidentally injuring one of the, the other women who's there which i think is a great sort of metaphor image but um but yeah that you know the whole movie is just kind of about kind of like francis high is kind of like the graduate is like a lot of these other you know uh movies about people in their mid 20 mid to late 20s right trying to to get it together um yeah, it's it's just about sort of the journey, right? Um, and um, again, I don't want to say too much about where the movie goes in the third act in particular, but I, I really went with the movie. Um, and I think that, you know, the ultimate ultimate thing that Julie has to discover over the course of the movie is that everybody, even these people who seem like they have it all put together, everybody's still figuring it out, it out in some regard. Um, you know, some people have just learned how to put up a better facade. And there's a really, really effective scene with Axel towards the very end after he has had something climactic happen to him. Um, 
And they, they, they have a long conversation outside where I think the movie's themes really sort of cement themselves. And again, I think Anders Danielson Lee is, uh, is not being talked about enough for his work in this movie. I think uh, in particular in that scene, he's, you know, really uh, emotionally stirring stuff. And um, the movie is also, again, it's very well directed by Joachim Trier. There's some experimental sections that I really liked. Um, this will be my one mild spoiler, I guess. So if you haven't seen it, come back in like 20, 30 seconds. But um, one moment I really loved um, and that I want people to experience spontaneously again, because uh, that's why I gave a spoiler warning is there's a long sequence where time stops and she kind of, you know, runs out and basically gets to experience this day with the guy, the second guy, the second man who ends up in her life. Um, Herbert Nordstrom. I forget what the, char the actor. character's name is. Yeah. His name is um, Ivand. Right. Ivand. Yeah. They, she meets him at a party and it, you know, becomes her next relationship, but time kind of stops. And then, you know, there's the great image at the section kind of ends with the great image that is on the poster of her just kind of running, a, you know, a, a motif that we've seen in several uh, movies this year, but it's just so, sort of this freeing experience for her where she just gets to like stop everything that is causing all of her, all of the stress and pressure and just experience life as she wants to experience it um you know uh, throwing all of the hard stuff out the window for 24 hours and whatnot um so that scene is really sort of cathartic to watch um but on the whole i think this is more of like a melancholy movie than something like francis highs right which is you know i think Francis. i would describe francis Ha as a comedy first and foremost um I, I wouldn't say that about the worst person in the world so i i think they are um, i think it's a dark comedy it, yeah, I mean, there, there are comedic moments for sure, but I think they are distinct films in a way that, you know, is effective, right? Like, it, if you watch Francis Ha, if you if you love Francis Ha and you're like, oh, do I really need to see another version of this? It's not really another version of this. It is just that the characters are in similar positions in their lives. Um, and so I think they're good, again, good companion pieces to each other. So I love this film, Scott, and I look forward to talking about it more in the coming months. Yeah, that that scene that you're talking about in particular in the third act of the movie, where Yuli and Axel are reunited for the first, I think it's the first time, but I might be misremembering a, a different encounter. Mm -hmm. But when when she yeah. goes to see him, oof, man, that that scene is that hit Tough that scene, hits man. hard. Yeah, that's yeah, good stuff. You yeah, should check movie. out Joaquin Trier's other work if you haven't. Yeah, and this is actually the third film in a trilogy that he made called the Oslo trilogy. trilogy. Now they're not, yeah. yeah, they're not connected in the terms of the plot or characters, but thematically, I'm guessing. But yeah, I mean, this definitely want, makes me want to check out um, some of his other work. I think the first film in particular in that trilogy, I can't remember what the name of it is, but it's very highly praised as well, from what I understand. So, are you, um, are you talking about Thelma? I think is I think that's the first one. Um, yeah, but. Uh, very, very interested to see what he does going forward and very interested to see what Renata Reinsford does going forward because she is um, wonderful in the movie and is this is kind of her, you know, big breakthrough. So hopefully she starts uh, getting more consistent work. Actually, is it Louder Than Bombs? I think those are the two, the other two in the trilogy. Yeah, I think those are the other two. But yeah, I can't remember which one it is that is really praised. But yeah, all good. All good. All right, my number eight. We're sticking with the theme of things that were in each other's 11 through 20. So we might as well, I guess, pick right up where we left off there. Mine is a little film that we spent about an hour last week talking about. Uh, that is The Lost Daughter. Talking about heavy films and, and tough watches that 
feel like they are meaningful and worthwhile to me. The Lost Daughter certainly qualifies as that directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal. Again, I, I feel like it's it's rep so repetitive just to talk about this movie again after a week ago. We spent an hour talking about it. But Olivia Coleman, sensational. I mean, when I was watching this the second time, I can't remember if we said this last week or not, but there was a point when I was watching the film for the second time where I was like, Olivia Coleman is like is like this good. Like she's really this good at acting. Like it's pretty crazy. She really went that hard. <laughs> yeah, she really she really did it. Um, she is phenomenal as Lita. Uh, Dakota jo Dakota Johnson, not Renata Reinsville, although you could mistake the two of them, um, is in this movie, and she plays Nina. Amazing. Jesse Buckley plays a younger version of Olivia Coleman in the film. Amazing. I just think that. There's just like there's just a special ingredient in movies like that are made like this are made so well that just seem like they have a bunch of really great parts. You put them together and that special sauce that either the director or the writing puts into it, sometimes both. Maggie Gyllenhaal is responsible for both in this case uh, is just really special. It's a, it's a great story told with a real with what feels like a real authenticity, not to. Not to draw the ire of Sam Levinson, but I will use the A word. And it, it just feels like, and this is the way I think Maggie Gyllenhaal talks about the film when she's doing Q&As, which I was able, uh, fortunate enough to hear at the New York Film Festival, is this this particular material just really felt like it was calling her to adapt it. And, you know, this is what sort of got her into writing and directing um, in, a, in a real way here, partnering with Netflix, writing to Alana Ferrante, who... You know, very few people in the world even know Elena Ferrante's real identity um, because it is it is um, a pen name. Um, and it's just really, really powerful stuff. Uh, I love the ending of this film. I love the ambiguity and the discussion that can be had around the end of this film. Um, and I just I really respect have a huge amount of respect for the themes of the film and, and how it's being told and the way it's all portrayed um, again. We have a full hour on this last week, so I don't want to go on and on too much about this. But um, Dick and Hinchliffe score incredible. I think the really claustrophobic camera work in some of the scenes um, showing you Lita's stress and anxiety about reliving some of these these mo or these moments that are that are forcing her to relive and remember um, decisions she made decades prior. I just think it's all so well constructed, so well framed, um, and executed beautifully. Yeah, I mean, look, it made my 11 through 20. We're having a lot of overlap here early on. And uh, I think I, I said just about all I wanted to say last week and also um, sure. a few minutes ago when I talked about it. It's it's a, a powerhouse drama. It, you know, is filmed kind of parts of it are filmed like a thriller, which we talked about last week, which I think will make it um, hopefully for people who give it a chance, right? A more engaging watch than you might expect. Um, but ultimately, I think that the 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 toughness of it the uncompromising nature of it is what makes it such a strong movie so some people won't go for it but um i'm glad we're both on the same page about this one those people are missing out yeah i i would definitely agree with that all right scott we're going to move on to my number eight in just a second but first uh we have a clip from a friend of the show zach ford uh who had my number eight as his favorite film of the year uh, so we're going to hear him uh, say a few words about this movie uh, before I chime in as well. So here's Zach. Hello, so I'm like at Scottaverse. This is Zach Ford. I'm calling in to Scott Harvey's cassette tape answering machine to give my number one pick of 2021. 
um, which is Mike Mills' Come On, Come On. Um, I tried to pronounce the apostrophes there, so I hope that came out. Um, but Come On, Come On, you know, I am a huge sap, just like this movie um, is the embodiment of human saptum. Um, it is about how do we reflect and articulate our emotions um, in a way to teach our next generation to be able to be as emotionally articulate and reflective, creating a society that, you know, cares and can be open with themselves and brave with themselves. Um, I think Mike Mills' movie is very daring to take, you know, pauses to, to just talk about how these characters are feeling. Um, and to be honest with each other, in, the, in a way, this is, like many of my favorite movies, a version of therapy, where I, as myself, and as a father, and a son, and, um, you know, someone who has, you know, some other struggles, how can I be so open and reflective with myself in a way that can teach my child to um, be able to be open and honest and um, to really help him become the best version of himself moving forward as well. Um, you know, Mike Mills is one of the best directors that's been working today, and I'm so excited to see, you know, how his career develops. Um, I feel like he is on my wavelength and uh, is easily becoming, you know, one of my most anticipated directors. So, come on, come on. Oh, wait, one more thought. Joaquin Phoenix, an actor normally don't like. Um, he, I feel like he mostly um, learned how to be human by watching Vincent D'Onofrio in um, Men in Black. It's like, oh, got it. That's how I'll be in those movies. Um, but somehow, he was able to act like a human being and, and really show some real soul and lose a lot of, I think, the like, cynicism that comes off in his other roles. Um, this is, I guess, most hopeful performance um, and really, you know, gives it that kind of soulful light that it needs. Okay. Um, two minutes and a half. Sorry for wasting all your time. Okay. Love you all. Goodbye. All right. Well, Zach said it very well uh, there, as he often And does. now you can tell him um, why he's wrong. It's not the best film of the year. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's only, it's my number eight favorite film of the year. But um, yeah. I, I said this the la last time I watched it. I have seen it twice now. Um, I think this is just a movie that reminds me why I love movies. Um, I decided after watching this movie the second time that Joaquin Phoenix's character, Johnny, is like, has my dream job, maybe, right? Uh, he's like this public radio type um, guy, but basically he's working on this project where he just gets to go around and interview teenagers. And, um, you know, those little interludes are sprinkled within the film, within the story of, you know, that's going on with Johnny and Jesse, the young boy played by Woody Norman. Um, and, it's just so, I mean, it is authentic. Like, sorry, Sam, but like these, this is authentic, as authentic as you get. I mean, they're basically documentary like sequences, which I like because Mike Mills's movies have such a documentary like feel, feel to them already because they are so heavily autobiographical. And, you know, some, I was talking to somebody about that wanted to go see this movie. And I was like, my recommendation to you before you see this movie is, Watch Mike Mills' last two movies. Watch Beginners. Watch 20th Century Women. Because I think this movie is great on its own. Don't, you know, don't get me wrong. But I think when you get the context for all of these movies, it just adds a new layer to Come On, Come On. Because Beginners, right, is about his relationship with his dying dad. Um, 
20th century woman is about his relationship with his mom and come on come on is now the next generation right mike mills is reflecting on his relationship with his own son um that he has with fellow filmmaker miranda july um and you know sort of it tried the the struggle of imparting wisdom on him right these other movies are about the parent his parents imparting wisdom on him um and are kind of his memories of childhood as told maybe slightly through the eyes of the parents right and now he is the parent here and the movie ends i think with this really moving sort of soliloquy type thing that joaquin phoenix's character has where jesse has now gone home to his mom and is you know sort of lamenting that they're not together and thinking about all the great times that they had and you know he's saying how am i going to remember everything that happened and Joaquin Phoenix, Johnny's character says, I'll, I'll help you remember. I'll make you remember. Um, and like, that's just, that was such a beautiful moment for me because then again, you think about those other two movies and it's like, this is what his parents made him remember. Right. And that became those two movies. Um, all of his movies feel like memories in their own way. Like I love the little interludes that he has, not just the, the interviews in this movie, but like literature is such an important, um, part of his all of his movies and there's these little sort of interludes where characters read passages from books the the movies again they feel kind of novel-esque in in a way like all of them do all the the three movies that i've mentioned um and so i i see them as a sort of loose trilogy of sorts um and i just love where things end up in this movie um and all the little things that both that that Johnny learns from Jesse, right? But also that Jesse learns from from Johnny. There, you know, it's a it's a give and take relationship. Um, and you know, I think also I, I have to give some credit to to Gabby Hoffman, who I think is one of my favorite supporting performances this year. I think Mike Mills is really really strong at writing female characters. He showed that in Twentieth Century Women, and the relationship between Johnny and um and gabby hoffman's character the brother sister relationship is one of the most like believable brother sister relationships um that i've ever seen in a movie maybe um so i just love movies like this that just open up this world um and are so uh, again a, another very open-hearted movie to go back to something you were saying about a couple of, of movies scott um it, it's it's a really it was just a really moving experience for me i think um mike mills has such a unique way of looking at the world and such an optimistic way of looking at the world that i just think we need in filmmaking and he's definitely now one of my favorite filmmakers he he you know he was already in that category after i watched beginners for the first time this year um but he is he is solidly up in the upper tier for me now and anything he does i will be be right there because again i, I think he is such an important and unique voice that we have in independent filmmaking um and I love everything he did with this movie and Joaquin Phoenix. I, it's really disappointing that he's not getting talked about more for, um, for, for awards when, you know, you consider that his last movie Joker, like he was cleaning up, but this is a, such a, such a better performance. And I just, I love seeing him play, get in touch with sort of this warm side of his persona. He did it in her too, which I think is his other best performance. Uh, probably. I think that's just where his strengths lie as an actor and, I think Mike Mills really understands that. So come on, come on. You know, absolutely wonderful film. Closing film at the Virginia Film Festival. Um, and, you know, even though I ended up getting back to North Carolina at like two or three in the morning because I stayed, I don't regret that I stayed because it was absolutely worth it.
Yeah, this is a film just outside my my top 20. I think it, if you extend if you extend out my list 10 more picks, it's definitely in there for sure. I saw this. Uh, the I think this actually been the last film I saw at the New York Film Festival. It was either this or the worst person in the world. I can't remember which one it was. Um, but yeah, I I really got on board with this film. I think about 45 minutes in it took it was a little slow to start for me. Maybe I wasn't really quite sure what what the deal was with Mike Mills because I hadn't seen a Mike Mills film before. Um, and maybe I was still taking some time to get on the same page as him. And I think that's what holds this film back a little bit for me from entering that sort of upper echelon of films that we're talking about here, because I still think it's a great film. I still think by the end of its whatever 110, 120 minute runtime, whatever it is, I think this film is really gripping and in that sort of open hearted, earnest, essential way that isn't concerned with anything more than just like trying to share experiences about these shared experiences, right? Like the, these moments that you can share with other people. In this case, you know, an uncle and a nephew, father, son, certainly I think could be a stand-in here as well. Um, and, and just sort of living and growing together. I think that there's, it's it's a theme and a genre, if, if, it, if I could go so far to call it a genre, a film that it doesn't get very much coverage, I feel like, in terms of the number of films that are made. And to your point about the awards conversation, is not the kind of movie that is typically awarded, you know, merits by either the Academy or even critics for that matter. And it is frustrating to see something as jaded at best, I'd even say about Joker to be getting a lot of attention. And then something like this, not at all. I mean, yeah. would, would I be selecting it? No, but I also understand why you feel that way. And I think that it's a lot more worthy than performances in Joker were. I mean, I will say that Mike Mills, uh, you know, his last two films were Oscar nominated. Uh, Beginners was an Oscar winner. 20th Century Women had an Oscar nominated screenplay. I, I certainly feel those, like this yeah. movie could be in the, the Oscar. Those types maybe, of, maybe just the yeah. screenplay. But I mean, yeah. those types of movies um, are it's more likely to be in screenplay than anything else. And I think that's where they're like the I don't want to call it a bias, but like there's like. I feel like there is like some sort of wall. Maybe this is a different conversation. There's like a wall between like, oh, that's like an interesting idea that was being explored in this movie. But because of the idea, I don't take like any any other real part of the movie too seriously um, in terms of awards, hey, which is I, a little a little weird. Yeah, I hear you. I think that's generally true. Again, Beginners won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. So uh, it's yeah. it's possible people just just, you know, have some have some faith. But um, but yeah, no. And an, another moment I want to highlight real quick and then we'll move on but you know i mentioned the interviews with the kids which i think are such a strong part of the movie add so much texture there's one in particular where this kid really opens up about like his dad being in prison for yeah. um a while and the experience of that and and you know he gives he goes on sort of this long speech and then the camera just like slowly pans over to joaquin phoenix after you know this incredibly insightful little speech from this like you know 11 12 year old kid and joaquin phoenix just has this kind of like you know, disbelieving, like, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. But like, I can't believe that this insight came from a teenager like you face. It's just a perfect moment of acting and perfect moment of like, you can't script that, right? Like, it's just, it's very clearly like pure in the moment, like just reaction to to what is going on. And uh, I think uh, his his films have a, at some moments they feel very heavily scripted and other moments they have that sort of loose unscripted feel to them. So I think it's a, it's a nice balance, but yeah, come on, come on. I love it. It's on VOD now. So check it out.
yeah, the interviews were some of my favorite part of the movie, to be honest. It was really mm -hmm. good stuff. All right, Scott, what's your seven? All right, my number seven, it's a film that you have not yet seen, a film that I got the pleasure, the true pleasure of seeing for a second time just this past week. It is Parallel Mothers, a Spanish film directed by Pedro Almodovar. And I went into this movie, I saw it for the first time at the New York Film Festival. It was the closing film um, at the festival that weekend. I saw it. And going in, I wasn't the biggest fan of his last movie, which is the only Almodovar movie that I have seen. And that was Pain and Glory, which I believe Antonio Banderas was Oscar nominated for and lead mm -hmm. actor. It did get some attention for those reasons. This film, I sort of just like it's Parallel Mothers. It's the closing film of the festival. I'm, I'm going to go see it. Um, Penelope Cruz, she's great. I'll go see what this film's about. And I was I was blown away, I think, in terms of what my expectations were um, up against how I actually felt walking out of the film. It's again, I don't want to spoil anything about this movie because there are some twists. Not that they're like super hidden or or not foreseeable once you're watching the movie, but I just don't want to talk too much about about the plot. But at a high level, it is a two hander, both in terms of its acting performances between uh, sort of veteran uh, Penelope Cruz, but then newcomer Molina Smith, who plays the other mother uh, that the title refers to. And uh, so it's a two-hander in that way, but it's also a two-hander in another way. And that is what the film is trying to do in terms of plot. It, in, on one hand, it is this story about motherhood, about raising a child and the complications that can ensue with that and the relationships that are born of this sort of strange uh, one-off experience in the hospital giving birth. And you've become really connected to another person um, in this way, and you and you stay connected with them over time. But then the second part of this is this really larger narrative um, at a much higher level about you know a, a national reckoning around sins of the past uh, at a level that we're talking about. Like, think again. I don't want to overly compare this to a film that is goaded status, but like Schindler's List. Like, there is a notion of like shared historical trauma about about certain about the Holocaust, right? Well, this film, in a way, part of it is about this national reckoning in Spain about the Spanish Civil War and about the atrocities that were committed and the genocide that was committed against certain parts, uh, certain members of the of the community and country at the scale, certainly not uh, the Holocaust or Schindler's List. I don't mean to over compare that. But I think what El Motivar is trying to do is shed a light with part of this movie on the fact that horrible things were done in this country only 100 years ago. And in many ways, it's not necessarily being swept under the rug. I don't, I don't understand Spanish politics well enough to know what the actual dynamic is there, but it's not being talked about and appreciated enough. And I think this film is really interested in a, in a, in a reckoning about that. And I found that part to be, one, just completely surprising because I had no idea that was going to be part of the movie. But two, it's actually, I think it's done pretty tenderly um, and effectively as sort of a sandwich uh, the bread of a sandwich that where the middle part is this story about motherhood. Um, I think the themes are not totally disconnected either. I think they connect it in really interesting ways about generational trauma and, and, and generational differences between people. But overall, Penelope Cruz gives a real knockout performance here uh, in the lead role as uh, Yanis. Um, and I love the supporting performance from Melina Smith. I love the male supporting performance from Israel Elahalde. Which who plays Arturo, um, who is a, an anthropologist, archaeologist of sorts, 
um, who is part of both stories, to be fair, but um, is most relevant probably um, at the, or is introduced as this person who might be able to help Yanis um, excavate um, a mass, a mass grave um, in her hometown, uh, which is related to that sort of Spanish civil war element that I was talking about. So just really, really incredible uh, movie for me, for me. It isn't perfect, but I just appreciate so much about it. And frankly, I'm shocked that this is my number seven and not higher on my list. Again, just speaking to the quality of the year. I, I loved this film at the festival. It's one of my favorites at the festival. Um, please check it out. It has a limited release right now. It's going wider, um, I think, in the, over the next few weeks and, and month. Um, and it will eventually certainly be out on VOD uh, when the time comes. Yeah, another one I think I'm going to get to see in January, Scott. Uh, I think it's coming to my indie theater here. Um, and I definitely plan to. It sounds very interesting. Um, I think that the... Um, you know, you mentioned one of my favorite films of all time there, Schindler's List. Um, and, you know, maybe it's not a one one to one comparison. It is but, not a one for um, one comparison, but it it does. Yeah. It does. There are moments that remind you of that, I think. Yeah, I think I think the the movies that like weave a very personal character based story into a more larger scale historical background. I think that's something that is is definitely strikes a chord with me. Uh, it sounds like that's kind of what Parallel Mothers is doing. So. Um, yeah. I'm I think the, the one knock I might have is that I think that it could have gone even further with interconnect. There are there are little moments where it does connect the things. I I wish it had maybe gone even a step further, and that's I think what have, what would have made it like, you know, one you know could have been in my top you know two or three of the year. But yeah. still, with what it did, incredibly powerful. All right, Scott, my number seven, and I, I should have said this up front, but I think that uh, we only have a couple maybe overlaps on our list that I'm anticipating, um, but. Uh, you know, I think when those movies come up, we can probably just go ahead and skip uh, and, and wait until they sure. appear on the other person's list to talk about them um, rather than, you know, doubling back. So I will go ahead and say we're going to be skipping this. But my number seven film is the Edson Oda film Nine Days. Um, but I know this is higher on your list, Scott. So um, we will table that and we'll talk about it in uh, a few minutes. So let's go to your six. My number six, it is a film that has already been mentioned. Uh, it has an actress who we've already talked quite a bit about uh, on this episode. Talking about, I was thinking of going into this when I was making my list last night, actually. They're like, oh, Olivia Coleman, man. She's had, she's had a year between The Father, which is my number six film of 2021, and The Lost Daughter. And then I realized there's like <laughs> several other people who qualify that way uh, in my yeah. top 10 list. And so I was like, well, it's not just her. Uh, but yeah, Olivia Coleman's uh, second film on my list. And that is the early 2021 drama, The Father. Uh, she stars alongside Anthony Hopkins in this drama, this very, you know, I don't want to say traditional, but um, more traditional than maybe some of the other dramas we've talked about so far. A drama about a man who is aging and who is experiencing dementia. It's directed by Florian Zeller. You mentioned that one of the things that you appreciated most about this film was the way it it portrays and uses editing and fluidity almost to really give a disorienting take on what it might be like to experience dementia. So it's, it is an adaptation of, of his stage play, but he's not just using the film medium to straight adapt that play. He is using things that are more unique to film, at least compared to theater, to enhance the experience. And I think I found 
that to be one of the things that I that was most impressive and and made this film stand out to me when I watched it for the first time. I mean, this film is is less than 100 minutes, but it is a real um, gauntlet to get through. I think that the scenes and the repetition, like the vague, uncanny repetition of certain scenes, the deja vu likeness of some of it really lends to this, again, like disorienting feeling of what it what Anthony Hopkins's character, who uh, I think his name is, I think his name is Anthony, actually, in the film, ironically, mm-hmm. is is going through. And when you combine the filmmaking craft that Florian Zeller puts into um, the experience of watching Anthony on screen with the actual performance that Anthony Hopkins gives, it, it really is one of those top experiences watching a movie this year. Olivia Coleman, who I have, I mean, I alluded to at the beginning, of course, but I haven't really mentioned yet as the daughter slash also caretaker um, of, of Anthony uh, named Anne is another just really stellar performance. It's what got her an Oscar nomination last year, continued her, her trend of getting nominated for pretty much every film that she does. We'll see if it's the same this year with the lost daughter. Um, but was totally worthy, in my opinion. It's just crazy that, you know, she had this outstanding performance and she was next to an even more stellar performance than Anthony Hopkins. Of course, so much controversy last year at the Oscars when Anthony Hopkins uh, beats out Chadwick Boseman for the Best Actor category. And as sentimental as I as I certainly was about Chadwick Boseman and his performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, um, it being a posthumous posthumous release, it probably is the better performance and it probably was the best performance of the ones nominated for me last year. And I just found this film to both be emotionally overwhelming, narratively overwhelming, just everything about this film's craft and the performances. I I just think it nailed it perfectly. It is difficult to watch. It is difficult to get through. It's not even one that I considered rewatching as we went into this list, frankly, but it just feels like one of those experiences that, you you need to have it one time to understand the level of the level of ingenuity that I felt like Zeller put into making this film and obviously how deeply personal it was to him to go to such great lengths to make it that way. Super excited for the companion piece, which I say sarcastically um, because it just sounds like a companion piece. The Sun, which is his next film <laughs> coming out at some point, unrelated film. Um, uh, also one of his plays, though. And really just can't wait to to see what he does next and what he's able to make of that. Yeah. Uh, amazing film. Um, I, again, I think this is one that like people saw and were like, Oh, this is going to some boring, depressing Oscar film. And then the people who actually gave it a chance were like, Whoa, like I, this wasn't what I was expecting at all because yeah, I mean, it is a traditional drama, but again, it is not like the, it's, it's not one of these like invisible director, like, you know, yeah just yeah straight off the assembly line oscar bait films like there's a lot of craft that goes into this um and uh, you know i think florian zeller deserves a lot of credit obviously um yep. like i said i i have few bad things to say about the filmmaking it's really just the the fact that i it's not something that i see myself coming back to very often if ever but um sure. it's definitely that one watch was was very powerful and devastating all right, Scott, uh, we're going to have another clip now from our friend Michael Campbell uh, all the way over in Australia uh, sent 
uh, in, in his two favorite movies of the year, one of which happens to be my number six film. Uh, so I will let Michael take it away. Uh, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is uh, Michael Campbell. Uh, just here to pop in and talk about a couple movies from 2021 that I really liked. Um, so yeah, let's get into it. Uh, the first one is uh, from one of my favorite directors, and it is James Wan's Malignant. Uh, this again, like I said, this is one of my favorite directors, and it is set in Seattle. So of course, I was going to love it. It is uh, just one of the most fun films in recent times I can remember. Um, it just has this over-the-top tone all throughout. Like there's some reveals that get said and there's like a ma epic zoom in and then a cover of where is my mind plays and that's just the most sickest shit ever how can you not love that there's like twists and turns it breaks the rules it follows the rules and then it breaks them again uh one is just having so much joy directing the hell out of this movie and i highly highly recommend it um yeah this is what you go to movies for essentially it's epic uh the next movie i'll talk about is an australian movie it is called Nitram. Um, it is directed by Justin Kurtzel. Um, it tells the true story of um, uh, the guy who committed the worst uh, massacre in Australian history in the 90s. So, yeah, it can be pretty dark at times, but that's really only at the end. Um, it sort of follows the main character, played by Caleb Landry, Caleb Landry Jones, sorry, um, and sort of just what it takes for someone to get to that point to commit an act like that. Um, it's a fascinating tale. It's unfortunately pretty relevant to today in terms of sort of mental health um, and sort of gun control. Um, the scene of him buying his gun is quite scary how easy it is. Um, so yeah, it can be pretty dark at times, but it is a film that you will never forget watching. Um, it's also a performance you won't ever forget. Caleb, Caleb Landry Jones is just quite astonishing in this. Um, he gives just an incredible performance that I highly recommend to uh, see. This is, you know, it's a small film. Seek it out. Um, yeah, it's just a gritty drama that is some of the best stuff you'll see. Um, so the other, that'll do it for me. Um, just wanted to pop in and talk about those two movies. Check them out if you can. Otherwise, peace. All right. Thank you, Michael, for sending that in. Uh, Scott, he mentioned Nitram there, I think is how he pronounced it. Um, a movie that neither of us, I don't think, have had a chance to see yet, but it looks like it's going to be coming out here maybe March of next year. But we did actually briefly talk about it uh, on the, the podcast because Caleb Landry Jones won Best Actor at the Cannes Film Festival for his performance in this movie, Nitram, from Justin Kurzel, which is an Australian film, also about a school shooting, it sounds like. So uh, cheery subject matter. But um, yeah, I remember being intrigued by it at the time. And, and Michael's recommendation definitely um, ratchets it up my list. So I'll definitely be looking for this at my indie theater come come March, which, like I said, I think is when it when it drops here. But Scott, my number six, this is my The Harder They Fall. This is my, you know movie that I, I will see myself re-watching many times over the years that I just want to pop on um, with friends or whoever and just have a great time. Malignant uh, is insanity. Um, and I agree with everything Michael said, um, especially the where is my mind needle drops 
um, are just placed at absolutely hilarious moments in the film that I just loved. Um, but uh, the one thing where I differ from Michael is, you know, he said he's a huge James Wan fan. I was not coming into this movie, right? Like, I don't really like the Conjuring or um, Insidious movies. I find them pretty derivative. Didn't didn't like Aquaman. You know, the first Saw is one of those movies where I admire the filmmaking behind it, but it's just not a very pleasant experience to watch. Um, so when I saw the trailer for this, I could not have cared less. Um, I, you know, said, oh, here we go. James Wan doing his traditional derivative horror thing. Ho-hum. I'll skip this one for sure. And then I kept seeing people say, no, no, no. This movie is nuts. This movie is insane. Um, and I was like, okay, well, that gets my attention a little bit. Um, I will throw it on an HBO Max. I don't know if I'm going to, you know, venture out to the theater to see it. Um, but let's see what all the fuss is about, because I like movies that go over the top. And woo buddy, does this movie go over the top? Um, it is a, you know, ode to the Italian giallo films, um, for sure, heavily influenced by, by them. And it just... It knows exactly what it is. Um, and and I will say, you know, again, I, I wasn't a James Wan fan going into this, but I think I, I, I now think I now think of James Wan as a genius because I think he's been playing the long game for all these years. I think he may, had to make all these movies. He had to make all these Conjuring and Insidious and um, and Aquaman and all that just so he could make Malignant. Right. Because he made the billion dollar Aquaman and then he follows it up with this. Doesn't have any you know famous actors in it. Um, is just completely off the rails. You know, he, he just does whatever he wants with the camera. He does all of these stylistic tricks, not really for much reason, just because they look cool. And I'm absolutely here for it. You know, there's this overhead shot of the house at one point, makes it look like a dollhouse when Annabelle Wallace's character, Madison, is running around. And yeah, and I mean, so there's a lot of that kind of stuff. I think the the whole like CSI investigation, true crime aspect of the first part of the movie is is a lot of fun. But yeah, I mean, once the movie, once everything clicks into place and everything is revealed about what's been going on in the last 25, 30 minutes of the movie, um, it is easily the most fun I had watching any movie this year. And as soon as I watched it on HBO Max, I was like, I have to run out and watch this in a theater now. Uh, and I wish I had seen it on the theater, like opening weekend with the full crowd, right? Because I'm sure people were losing their minds. Um, it, it is definitely. Were there full of... crowds for this movie, though? I don't know. But I mean, again, yeah. James Wan, I think he can draw a crowd. Um, and there, there are some people who are just like, uh, these people exist, but they don't watch movies except for horror movies. Like they love horror movies and will go see like any horror movie. So um, totally. I, I, I think, think those exists. people probably. But it's just it, on HBO that. Max. Yeah. It's. It's sure. Easy to watch. Um, yeah. But a fuller crowd, I guess, than than was there when I did eventually go see it in theaters. But um, but yeah, I just had an absolute blast with this movie. You know, it, it's it was easily my biggest surprise of the year again because I didn't expect anything from this. I didn't even expect that I was going to watch it. Um, and I just love a movie like that. Like Happy Death Day is a similar example where you just go in expecting nothing and you end up just having an absolute blast. Um, and I think again, James Wan deserves the most credit here because. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what this film was supposed to be. I think everyone is on the same page that this is just campy B movie fun. Um, and oh man, is it fun? I've watched it three times already. I can't wait to watch it more. Um, I can't wait for people to discover this movie even more than they already have over the years and it hopefully become 
you know, a cult classic because it is the it is the one for me that James Wan got to make after making Aquaman. And it is glorious. Um, it's time to cut out the cancer, Scott. I can't even replicate the needle drop, but yeah, it, it was time and, and we cut the cancer out. And even you had a good time with it. Yeah. Well, it's not anywhere near my top 20, but I had a good time. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there you go. All right, Scott, we're going to take a short break now um, as we are um, about halfway. We are halfway through our, our top 10 lists. Um, so we're going to take a short break. When you come back from the break, you're going to hear our good friend and countdown host, Jay Habib, giving us his favorite film of 2021. Uh, and then we will be back with our top five. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey guys, it's Jay Habib from the Nolan, Fincher, Star Wars, and Bond Countdown series. My favorite movie of 2021 was undoubtedly Spider-Man No Way Home. Massive spoilers to follow. A movie that could have just as easily been titled Spider-Man, fan service done the right way, this movie perfectly ended Tom Holland's trilogy arc, turning a young kid who just wanted to be a superhero into a true hero who understands the sacrifice that comes with the role. Holland showed us a wide range of Peter Parker energy in this one. The suffering that comes with the loss of a hero's loved one. Struggling with wanting to kill the Green Goblin. Wanting to tell MJ about their story when he sees her at the coffee house after the final battle, before ultimately deciding to let her go. He showed some real acting chops in this one, and deserves heaps of praise for it. At the same time, this movie was also a wonderful love letter to the Spider-Men of the past and their villains. Shout out to Andrew Garfield, forgetting to don the mask for at least one more time. He absolutely stole every scene he was in. I cheered like a giant child when he came through the portal, and his interaction with Zendaya at the final battle will never stop tugging at my heartstrings. Every story that comes out of his involvement in and around the film, all the times he tried to lie to keep his involvement a secret, despite the literal photographs and videos of him on set, the fact that he improvised the I love you line, his description of the cosmically beautiful moment where he saves Zendaya to keep his younger brother of sorts, the Tom Holland Spider-Man, from suffering the same fate as his Spider-Man, and the fact that he and Tobey Maguire snuck into a premiere incognito on opening night, where I hope he felt so loved, all these stories just make me feel all the good things for him. He deserves all the praise he's been getting for his part in the film. Shout out to Willem Dafoe, who is still the most terrifying comic book villain to ever grace our screens. Jamie Foxx, I really do hope we get a live-action Miles Morales trilogy once Tom Holland is done with the role. Thank you, Alfred Molina, for reminding us to do better. And thank you, Tobey Maguire, for reminding us one more time that with great power comes great responsibility. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Thank you to Jay for his uh, clip that he sent in there uh, highlighting Spider-Man No Way Home. So throwing some some more love on that movie. Scott had it tied for his number 20 slot. Um, I definitely enjoyed this one as a Spider-Man film as well. It was my favorite MCU entry of the year. That was pretty disappointing for the MCU overall. Uh, but I did have a lot of fun with that movie. So um, thanks to Jay for 
um, for sending that in. And um, we will be doing some new countdown series in 2022. And we hope to have Jay joining us for those. So um, yeah, again, thanks to him for sending that in um, and for his participation in the countdown series that we did have this year. We had a lot of fun doing uh, the James Bond series. All right, Scott, we are here in the top halves of our top 10. Uh, why don't we get things started with your number five? Yeah, sure. Why not? You know, I talked about Parallel Mothers at number seven, and I and I couldn't believe that it wasn't higher. I kind of feel the same about my next film. I, I alluded to it earlier uh, when I mentioned Ryusuke Hamaguchi's other film from this year, which was Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. As a reminder, that was my number 15. Well, this is my number five, and that is his other film, that is drive my car it <laughs> it was pretty hard to believe for me after watching wheel of fortune and fantasy at the festival that he was going to have a movie that just really was like so clearly even better than than what he did with his with his sort of short film compilation that film was about two hours this film is a real epic um not in terms of scope about what it's trying to cover but just a film that has decided to take its time unspool its narrative and just do everything it wants to do um, narratively and emotionally on the screen. Like I said, Drive My Car, Japanese film. I, I, I forgot to mention that earlier. He's a Japanese director. Maybe you could have figured that out yourself, but it should just be more explicit about it. It stars Hidetoshi Nishijima as the lead role of Yusuke Kafuku, who is a you know local to Tokyo. He's a Tokyo theater director, so he directs and stars in his own theater plays. Um, usually adaptations of 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 um, you know famous famous works, and I think I just have to start and say, a he's amazing in the film, absolutely. But this film is just all about Ryusuke Hamaguchi's adaptation of multiple sources of material. Um, I was just so thrilled, a to see this in a theater. Now I've seen it twice in a theater, um, but b also to listen to him talk about his movies. If you ever get the chance to to go to a Q and A with him. You're, and if you enjoy anything that he does in terms of his movies and how he makes films, like absolutely go to that. Even seek maybe out some clips on YouTube. It is so fascinating to hear him talk about his movies. But but hearing him talk about Drive My Car was just so enriching, I think, to the experience that I had just had because he really goes into depth about what things that I feel like you can, you can like get the sense of when you're watching the movie. I mean, this film is sort of being advertised as an adaptation of a Murakami short story um, about uh, men without women, I think is the name of that short story. I can't, I can't remember um, exactly the name of it, but it's not just that though. It is, it is an adaptation and it is sort of that, that short story, that, that source material is used as a foundation or a structure in which to construct his own narrative. He's also um, adapting other pieces of work. He's adapting, um, other stories that I think will be recognizable to people. And again, I'm trying not to spoil too much with it because I think there is an emotional weight behind some of some of the reveals. And if, I, if you were to talk about what other stories might be involved with it, that would give it away. Um, but then he's also inserting his own original uh, narrative into other parts of it as well. It's not a straight adaptation of, you know, material A or material B. It is a melding of those two with his own creations um, used as well to accentuate and enhance everything. And it just, especially after watching it for the second time, it just felt like one of those 
unique transcendent pieces of adaptation about of of creation on the screen. Um, not only is it successful in that, but it really also feels like a self-assessment of his own creative process. Again, something which he was able to to sort of confirm in the, in the Q and A after I watched it. There's a huge chunk of this film um, that is is used that is adapting um, the Isaac um, Asimov play Uncle Vanya, or is it Chekhov? Uh, I'm forgetting. Right yeah, now. An yeah, Ant Anton Chekhov. It's, an it's Anton Chekhov, not yeah, Isaac yeah. Asimov. Yeah, yeah, Anton Chekhov uh, play Uncle Vanya, and I think you get to sort of see Hamaguchi put his own creative process onto the screen because, you know, a good half of this movie is essentially the, the main character adapting Uncle Vanya with his like theatrical troupe of people he's put together and the process by which they prepare um, to, to do these performances. And I just find that utterly fascinating. Some people might find that really slow. I found it enrapturing in, in, in almost to see an artist put his creative process um, on display and sort of let you make of it what you will. I mean, he obviously comes out really clearly about how he feels about his creative process and that he thinks it works and he likes it. Um, but I don't think that he's forcing that onto his audience either. I think that he is allowing people to question that and to engage with that in, in a way. And I think his creative process, like I'm not going to pretend to know how most people create art, but I think his is a little bit different than other people's. And so to see that openness, that willingness to let people critique his own process and, and for him to critique his own process, but then also deal with these incredibly heavy emotional themes. I mean, I haven't even really talked about the emotional um, threads of the film, but the film is essentially about the central character, uh, Yusuke Kafuku, who's having to deal with the loss of someone he loves. I mean, it is, I don't think it's a spoiler, but I guess it's a slight spoiler maybe. So if you don't want to hear this part, fast forward 30 seconds. But it is, the first act of the film is is about his relationship with his wife. His wife dies. And the other two hours and 20 minutes of the film are about him trying to overcome and come to terms with that loss. And also uh, with the knowledge he had about maybe some truths about his wife that um, he wasn't supposed to know that he came to know um, just through like by accident, however you want to frame that about who she was. And uh, I just find that exploration again of uh, about the relationships we have with people and how they continue to affect us years after they are no longer a part of our lives. It's a similar thread and theme that's found in wheel of fortune and fantasy, but rather than a 40 minute short film, it's a three hour <laughs> epic uh, odyssey. Uh, emotional odyssey about coming to terms with that and the relationships that he has. The main supporting role, at least for the second half of the film, is played by Toko Mura, who's her her character's name is Misaki Watari. Um, she is the person driving his car, uh, hence the name of of the of the movie Drive My Car. And they have more in common, maybe um, emotionally, not with actual experiences, but emotionally, um, than than initially meets the eye and. Another film about a lot of conversations, a lot of conversations happening um, in a car between other between multiple people. And I just find the particular style of filmmaking that Hamaguchi, again, not just creatively how he goes through the process of creating something, but the actual end product of that, the sort of culmination of the meta-ness of the film, really, really rewarding. Um, it, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that his films 
and the performances in his films are not filled with a lot of emotion. In fact, it's really quite dry and emotionless for for, for a good chunk of it. I think it's partly maybe a, a Japanese culture element to it, but also in particular, and this goes back to, I think, putting this creative process under the microscope, it is intentional to remove a lot of emotion from the performances so that when the emotional climaxes, the emotional peaks of the film hit, they hit particularly hard. Everything sort of hits home, drives to the very, I think, core of the of the viewer and of the audience and gives even more weight to those impacts than if you've been having these sort of emotional crests happen throughout the film. And just an incredibly rewarding experience. I've been utterly shocked that it's gotten as much love as it has so far in award season. I don't really expect that to continue that much longer, but it's a film that's really special to me. And although it's a slow plodding three hour film, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a film I revisit again sometime in the future. And it is, it is really special to me. It is a film that cemented my intention of watching all of his other films. I mean, Scott, he has, a, I don't know if you know a lot about his films, but he has a five hour film. Uh, <laughs> oh, I didn't from know like that. From like five or like four or five years ago that debuted at the film festival, the New York Film Festival, which I can't even imagine going to a four and a half, five hour screening at a festival. Unbelievable stuff. Um, so he's not concerned with film length. He's, he is most concerned with, again, that process and that execution. Um, and culmination of, of the emotional themes he's exploring. And I like that dedication. And I think that he's such a good filmmaker that he earns those long run times and he earns that patience with his art because he keeps it interesting in different ways and delivers emotionally at the end. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal film. Oh yeah, Happy Hour. I have heard of that before actually. That's the five hour one. Um, yeah, yeah uh, Scott, I sound like a broken record here i'm pretty sure this is going to be at my indie theater next weekend and i absolutely have plans to see it if it is so um i don't have anything to add because i haven't seen the film but i hear nothing but the most rapturous things on it from you and other people so you don't have your letterbox review already written i thought people did that before they saw movies yeah i guess i'm just not with the time scott i guess i just prefer to watch the movie first sorry room for um, growth in 22 for you there you go yeah uh, all right, Scott. Well, you talked a lot about Drive My Car, and I'm afraid I'm going to make you talk a lot again uh, right now because we're going to be skipping my number five, I believe. It is uh, the Oscar winner from last year, Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, yes, we are, but it won't be too long before we're talking about it. So give it a minute. All right. Let's move on to your number four. All right, Scott. This is a film. I think this is the film this year that on a second viewing stepped up even even further up my list. I think originally this pick would have been somewhere probably around where you actually had this film in your list at, you know, your number 20. And for those who have forgotten already, that is uh, Jane Campion's film, The Power of the Dog. I saw this at the New York Film Festival. It was the centerpiece film at the New York Film Festival this year. Again, a movie that I didn't feel any real emotional connection to that I had to see it because it was one of the more expensive tickets at the festival because of that centerpiece nature. But I saw it on like a side screen, essentially. So um, it was a more reasonable price. And I was so happy that I did. I thought it was a really well-made film the first time. Benedict Cumberbatch absolutely blew me away. Cody Smith-McPhee as well, I think, is a performance that particularly stood out to me 
on a first viewing. He's gotten a lot of plaudits already for his role in the film as uh, I guess the the nephew in law. Like, what's what's the the nephew in law? Is that would that be the right uh, relationship to Phil? I guess, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He he plays uh, Peter, uh, which is the son of Phil's brother George's his new wife. That I don't even know why I just said those words out loud in that order. Uh, that may, makes no sense whatsoever. You killed my mother's sister. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What a line. Um, yeah. But he plays Peter in the film. And and I find and I think this actually might have been what you were alluding to is that that relationship between Peter and Phil as it develops over the course of the film. I found that one just to be so fascinating. I mean, yes, it is this interesting, really tight, tense um, sort of sort of squeezed almost portrayal like it feels like it's just gripping you and squeezing the air out of your lungs throughout the whole film the first time you're watching it um just like taking your breath away making you hold your breath etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, because you just have absolutely no idea what's going to happen uh, at you know when when the climax hits in this movie you're just not sure what's going to come of these characters uh, and that was one of the endearing qualities of the film to me on a first viewing on a second viewing i think is when all the pieces really sort of fit together and, and this is like i said this is the film that that it's happened in past years. I think Black Klansman is an example back from 2018. Parasite, I think, is this in 2019. That it just shot up my list when I watched it the second time. I got even more appreciation, I feel like, for almost every element of the film. I mean, I already appreciated things like the cinematography, uh, which I believe is Ari Wegner, and the score, which is, of course, by Johnny Greenwood, one of his many scores this year that I feel like people have highlighted. Spencer being, you know, namely the other one. Um, but those are things that I loved from the, from the get-go about this. I loved Benedict Cumberbatch. I love Cody Smith with Fee. But I feel like that the other part of the film, the the Jesse Plemons who plays Phil's brother George and Kirsten Dunst who, play, who plays Rose, which is George's wife later on in the film, I think I gained more appreciation for those characters and what they were doing in the context of this film, as well as the sort of narrative culmination of the film, which... I can't just help but think I must have just been a little bit dumb in this movie the first time I was watching. I think I said that on the podcast when we reviewed this movie. But th things clicked together in the second viewing, and I understood what was going on a lot better. And I just think that what Jane Campion was able to construct in this adaptation was chef's kiss. Like, it was just perfect um, how she was able to subtly, not trying to hide, again, not trying to hide anything, but just subtly you know, feed you breadcrumbs, lay things out, and create this complicated portrayal of two men, uh, Peter and Phil. Um, the film has a lot to say and to think about in terms of masculinity, about relationships and what those can mean um, to different people in different ways, to like idolization. So like, you know, uh, how, for example, Phil idolizes his mentor, Brom Henry, and how he, I think he really struggles with George not idolizing that person and not having the same connection and relationship and how he's <clears throat> trying to bridge those connections in other people, namely Peter and, and, and George, although in a failed way, I just think it's fascinating. Uh, the kind of movie that, although it is two hours plus in length, I'm not even thinking about how long the movie is taking. It's just utterly perfect craft from Campion. It feels like every, every frame is manicured and and intentional not wasted it's not wasting anything in the film and i couldn't speak more highly of it it was a real 
<laughs> it was a really uh, intense head-to-head -head battle between drive my car and this for my number four spot. Um, and, and I think this won out just barely, but really, again, another just top tier film from this year. Yeah, it was, came in at my number 20. Uh, I, I really liked this movie. Didn't, you know, fully surrender to it just because I don't think it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a difficult film, you know, like a lot of the other movies sure. we've talked about. I, you know, there's not necessarily a character who you fully connect to, um, which I think makes the movie good. Uh, but also, you know, doesn't make me necessarily want to come back to it. Um, it makes it compelling, but not bit. enticing. I think. I'd yeah. Say. Just a little yeah. bit emotionally cold, I guess, in the end, uh, by de again, by design and everything that is designed in this movie is designed yeah. to perfection, um, by Jane Campion. Uh, and if she, I you know, takes home the Academy Award for best director, I will have no qualms about that. Um, it's one but, of those things where, uh, to, to the point that you were just making, it's like it, it's it's just so intentional about like everything that it that it does. Like going back to this like thing that's not wasted. It's like it's just trying to put you on edge constantly, I think. And that's yeah. that can be hard to get through, but I find that to be even more fascinating that a filmmaker is able to do that without ever really dangling too much in front of you. Okay, Scott, we are moving on to my number four now. Uh, and it's uh, a documentary. Uh, we talked about one on your list, Scott, Try Harder. Um, now we have my favorite documentary of the year, uh, which is the amazing uh, Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, um, directed by Amir Thompson, a.k.a. Questlove. Um, this is a movie about the 1960 eight Harlem culture festival, um, held the same summer as Woodstock. Um, it is known as the, the black Woodstock. Um, but it has only become known as that recently because this footage, uh, was lost uh, of the festival for many, many years, uh, until Questlove himself basically excavated it and has turned it into this documentary now. Uh, and the event itself that was so sort of lost to history that, you know, it's a running thread sort of through the film. And the movie actually ends with this one guy, Musa Smith, who's one of the festival attendees saying, you know, thank you. Like, I'm so glad that you found this footage because, you know, I had gone 30 years, 40 years, and I was starting to feel like this had never actually happened. Um, like, like I had just dreamed it up. Like this wasn't actually a real memory. Um, and so it's just kind of this amazing work, again, of historical excavation uh, to bring this footage out from wherever it was buried. Um, and the festival itself is a, a you know, music, music and arts festival. Um, and we get to see a lot of clips from performers from Stevie Wonder um, to Nina Simone, Sly and the Family Stone, The Fifth Dimension, Mavis Staples. Um, and, you know, just all kinds of legends of soul and R&B music in particular, just very important black artists, very important artists to the black community. And intertwined with all of this, uh, you know, the just the footage, it, it's not just a concert documentary. If it was just a concert documentary, it'd be great. But the thing that makes it, I think, an all timer is the context, you know, that that Questlove really brings to all this and the different you know, just the different threads and the, the interview segments, like he, there's one segment where he has the 
the fifth dimension watching their own performance for the first time. They watch their own performance of Aquarius uh, and let the sunshine in. And just seeing how emotional they get, how much it meant to them um, is, you know, amazing to watch. Um, you know, he he. there's a whole segment about, you know, the fact that the the moon landing is going on around this time and what is the the black community's reaction to the moon landing and you know may perhaps unsurprisingly you know their their reaction is they're rather disillusioned and unenthused with the fact that the government is spending all of this money to put a put put whitey on the moon as the uh the song the speech the poem goes um when you know black people are suffering throughout the country and so you know that's an important context um, again, just all the interviews and the people relaying their own experiences of, of being there. Like I could have listened to this for hours and hours. Like I, I would have liked to see this documentary, like every single person basically um, who was at this festival. If, the, if this movie had an interview with every single person at this festival describing how they got there, you know, their memory of the festival, you know, who they are, I would have watched the entire thing if it had been about every single person. And, you know, there are so many shots, like the footage itself is unbelievable how like the high quality of the footage. And I'm sure some of this was the restoration that Questlove and his team did to it. But um, just the the way that we see so many faces in the crowd. I, and again, I just wanted to know these people's stories and the fact that it's just all of these black faces, it, it foregrounds black faces throughout the entire movie. Um, and it's it's just amazing, right, that to me that this whole thing went on and was just um, this massive event with massive artists, massively meaningful thing to, to black uh, history and culture and was just completely forgotten, completely put aside. It makes you wonder how many other, you know, historical events there are like this out there that we don't know about. I mean, Judas and the black Messiah, which we're going to talk about in a, in a few minutes is another film like that, where now that story, that is not as hidden, right? This, what happened to Fred Hampton and, Bill O'Neill is not like, it's not like it's been buried somewhere, but it might as well have been, right? Because they don't teach this in school. They don't teach that in schools, right? They don't, I never learned about this until I saw that movie. I certainly never knew that this festival went on until I saw Summer of Soul. Um, so it's just, it's inspiring. It is, you know, just, just amazing to watch. And I saw this movie in theaters on the 4th of July. Um, and that was just, it was the perfect movie to watch on the 4th of July to watch like this very important piece of American history that I knew nothing about, um, for the first time. The music is obviously amazing. Um, the other segment that I think is, is amazing is, um, there's a, there's a whole, so Jesse Jackson speaks at the festival about spending the last night of Martin Luther King's life with him there at the hotel. And... Um, and then Sister Mahalia Jackson and uh, Mavis Staples and really a whole crowd of artists sing Take My Hand, Precious Lord, which was MLK's favorite song. And I mean, that's just so powerful to watch. Like, I mean, uh, I one of the most moving moments that I saw in a movie this year was definitely seeing that when Nina Simone comes on stage and just like captivates everyone. Um she sings a song to be young, gifted and black, which, you know, is an amazingly written and performed song. Um, Sly Stone, Sly and the Family Stone. I mean, Sly Stone, just an effortlessly cool dude. And, you know, they sing everyday people, their classic song. And it's it's just great vibes, but also, I think, very important historical context and 
personal emotional context, right, for the artists and the people who attended this festival. Um, I think, like, I just, Quest Love, I want to see him make a lot more films. It's it's one of those movies you watch, and obviously Questlove has been a, you know, musician for many years now as part of The Roots and very acclaimed musician, but you watch this movie and you're like, this guy needs to be making movies. Like, he is a real filmmaker, um, and I can't wait to see what uh you know where he takes his talents next in the filmmaking realm because this movie is just awesome yeah i got the chance to see this on the first night of sundance i watched this thing at like 1 a.m um after in the same breath which is a covid documentary like a documentary about the start of covid in in wuhan china and a i believe it was a hong kong film um called one for the road I forget the name of the director off the top of my head, but I wa that I watched those two movies and then I was like, you know, I paid a lot of money for Sundance. I'll just go ahead and throw on this movie too. Um, and it, it immediately stuck out to me as the kind of film that it was just remarkable that this thing got made. It was remarkable that this footage was found. It was remarkable how it was edited and restored. Um, I didn't feel a close personal connection to this. I don't think it, that's a surprise to you necessarily. I think we've talked about how maybe it makes sense why it resonates more with you than it did for me, uh, just because of your greater um, connection to to music and and to that part of of you know shared culture. Um, me less so, but I did marvel at its accomplishment about it about its existence, even if I didn't necessarily feel the same things that you described feeling for this thing. I'd love to see what Questlove does next come out of it because it does show that he has a real a real eye for the cinematic for um this type of work and so to take what must have been hundreds of hours of work to do what he did for this film if not thousands frankly um to see what he's going to do next with that with that talent and with what he's already accomplished that's exciting for me yeah and you know i was talking about like just seeing all the people in the faces and everything i think another important thing is like you know, so many movies about this part of history and African-American history are focused on the struggles, the turmoils, the sure. all that. I mean, Judas and the Black Messiah is an example. Yeah. Um, this is about and this. Yeah. This movie is not that right. It is. Yeah. It shows them living their lives, enjoying their lives. It, it, it shows, you know, black people going to this event which was meant to be a, an escape from all of that a catharsis you know yeah. where they could be together and celebrate their you know culture and history and everything um and i think it's so important that we have those stories out there um, as much as we do stuff like judas and the black messiah so that yeah. was another also, big takeaway for me absolutely and from a cultural perspective it, maybe it sounds obvious to say it out loud, but I think it's easy to forget. It's really important to not have films about trauma, like only films about trauma, about black trauma yeah. in, in, as a cultural society. I, I think The Harder They Fall is an example of a film that is also about like stylizing and appreciating black culture and, and making that cool and whatnot. Um, and this, I think, is another angle uh, of that that doesn't involve, you know, having to reckon with these atrocities, either fictional or real in the case of Judas and the Black Messiah. 100%. All right, what's your number three, Scott? All right, Scott, I mean, this is a nice segue because it is that film that we just were talking about yeah, moments ago and that you passed on uh, just a few minutes ago, and that is the January 
uh, HBO Max day and yeah. date release. Judas and the Black Messiah I feel very comfortable calling this a 2021 film because it quite literally could not have been seen in 2020. I don't think there was a single screening of this thing in 2020. So I feel yeah. even though it was, you know, I probably saw this film before Nomadland, I think even something like that. Um, mm. I feel very confident saying it's a 2021 movie directed by Shaka King and his I believe what his, his feature length directorial debut and starring just I mean, everything this man touches is absolute fire. Daniel Kaluuya uh, co-starring Lakeith Stanfield who is one of those people I was alluding to when I was talking about Olivia Coleman, who had who has had a banner year. I mean, between the harder they fall in this, what what great stuff from him this year. Jesse Plemons, I mean, another actor um, in, in a top five movie for me of the year. I uh, talk about Power of the Dog just a moment ago, also in Judas and the Black Messiah. And then in, in you know, I guess sort of the fourth and, and final like main role of the film, Dominique Fishback, who plays Fred Hampton's lover girlfriend mm -hmm. i don't actually know if they throw around labels too much um in the movie but clearly uh, i mean emotionally yeah, the, the mother of his child the mother of that's a, that's know, probably the best way to portray it yeah. yeah his romantic interest in the film if you will mm -hmm. um deborah johnson and i remember i just i just so viscerally remember exactly you know where i was sitting on my couch in boston when i watched this movie um on hbo max i remember how i felt when i was watching all the scenes I remember just how, frankly, dumbstruck I felt after the movie finished. Um, just what what a film, what Shaka King was able to do uh, in his first outing. I believe he co-wrote the film with um, the Lucas brothers, Kenneth and Keith. Mm -hmm. And just telling this piece of American history, you're just talking about it a moment ago that isn't taught in schools for, you know, what, whether that's maybe more innocently or more maliciously not taught in schools, not, you know, people don't know about this unless you have a family member or a, or a close or a close friend who this feels, who this is important to who's told you about it. Like this is not something that gets talked about, at least not in my experience. And the fact that it just feels, it just feels like such an important part of American history, but it's really ugly. It's like obviously extremely ugly um, American history. And for something that's so much that is just so oriented around death and the death of Fred Hampton and, and, and how that came about. Right. And how Lakeith Stanfield's character, um, who's uh, Bill O'Neill. Yeah. Bill um, who played, a, yeah, played a role in that as sort of an, an inside man, quote unquote, for the FBI uh, and, and Roy Mitchell, who is Jesse Plemons character, who's an FBI agent. I, I think it's the FBI. It is the FBI, right? pretty sure mm -hmm. yeah um how, the how... fbi murdered fred hampton i mean exactly yeah 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 and how they played a role in that and and it's just it feels like it's trying to do two different things and it does both of them just so you know masterfully like one is to is to give this portrayal of life to this man who was killed and murdered at the hands of the fbi fred hampton how electrifying he was and how electrifying daniel kaluuya is in this role um and then the other part is this again, this reckoning for Bill O'Neill about the position he ends up being within the Black Panthers and the position he ends up playing and the role he ends up playing in the murder of Fred Hampton to, you know, and and what that ultimately results in and sort of the the coda of the film. And the, um, when, you, when you find out the toll it takes on that character, I just find and maybe I'm just being repetitive and I need to come up with a new way to say all this or, or just say it less. I don't know. But I just find. Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield in this to be absolutely breathtaking. 
in their performances. Um, you know, there's there's I, I'd point to one scene and there probably is one scene you point to at the, the, the church scene where Fred Hampton is, is sort of giving his sermon, um, you know, at the pulpit. But I think there's plenty of other scenes as well where you just cannot take your eyes off of him. He just again, he's electrifying. He captivates, you know, not only is he able to embody this this character, this larger than life figure of Fred Hampton. Um, you know, he he's able to make you believe that he could be that that he could be Fred Hampton. Um, and that is just something remarkable about Daniel Clee and everything that he does. I think that there to no exception, he's able to just disappear into these roles, even though, you know, it's him. He's just such a such a remarkable actor. And, and you know, maybe, you know, maybe one of my favorites that's currently in the business. Um, Lakeith Stanfield, very different type of performance. It is a haunting performance, almost the internal psychological struggle that this uh, that this person goes through, that Bill O'Neill goes through. He he just really puts that you know front and center on the screen where he is the center. You know when when he's by himself, when he's you know meeting with Jesse Plemons as FBI agent, whatever. Like you see the trauma, not to overuse that word too much. You see the struggle that he's having and the, and the trauma that's putting him through, especially. You know, when you reach the end of the movie and, you know, he, he makes the, you know, if, if you will, he makes the wrong choice um, with, with what ultimately happens. But maybe it wouldn't have mattered in the long run anyway. Maybe it would have happened anyway. You know, I think this film is certainly asking that question. But the fact is, he did play a role in that. I just find it a remarkable creation, a remarkable um, filmmaking uh, exercise for someone like Shaka King who hasn't in theory, done too much of this work before. Really, really incredible stuff, moving stuff. And you talk about um, memorializing moments in, in, in American history that are dirty, but really important to not forget. And Judas has that has that quality in spades, something which, unfortunately, not enough. Uh, there are not there is not enough of in our society, probably. Yeah, um, I think, you know, you've said really well why the historical, you know, aspect of this movie is so important, because, again, not something that we were ever taught in schools, not something that uh, I knew about, but is obviously a very important story to tell. Um, I think, yeah, I just rewatched this the other night and, you know, it just goes like it just it starts and it just goes like I, I got to see it in theaters. I did go to see it in theaters and. You know, I can just remember because that all of 2020 passed and, you know, there were a lot of good movies, but we didn't get to see a lot of them in theaters. And it was just kind of, um, you know, just a lot of a waiting game. And then I went to the theaters and I saw this movie and it was like, I'm watching a movie again. Like, I feel like I'm watching a real movie, uh, like the second this thing starts. Um, and it just, you know, gets better and better. Yeah, that one scene after Fred gets released from prison and gives the speech is amazing not just kaluuya's you know performance but i think what everyone is doing in that scene um body language and facially because none of them are saying anything but dominique fishback who yeah. uh, i think is really strong in the movie by the way um and you know her sort of agreeing with everything that fred is saying but also very skeptical and like hesitant to embrace it because of the, the attention that he, she yeah. knows he's going to draw right um and the the risk that is involved like you said injects um, that human element Bill, that i think we all it's almost like we are are her in the movie right like you're you have the same hesitations although mm -hmm. you recognize that what he's doing is like right if you will 
Yeah, Bill O'Neill, the Lakeith Stanfield of like, you know, balanced on that line of wanting to protect his own, protect his protect himself, right? Because he's he's got to be informing on Fred Hampton. That's the only reason he's keeping himself out of jail, out of prison. Um, but also realizing that he, you know, identifies with all of the rhetoric that Fred is espousing and, you know, that he wants to be the kind of revolutionary that Fred is asking his followers to be. Um, and then Jesse Plemons as, as Roy Mitchell with that sort of that sort of menacing figure there who's just like smiling and, you know, kind of winks at Bill from the audience. He's standing in the back of the crowd during the whole thing. It's just a, it's an amazing scene. It is absolutely one of the scenes of the year and not just because Kaluuya's performance is so, you know, captivating, but um, yeah, you know, I, again, I think you said all of it pretty well. I don't have too much more to add, but um, yeah, that last title, that last card where you've, uh, where it's revealed what happened to Bill O'Neill afterwards. is just one of those where you just go, wow, like in the theater. Um, because again, you, I didn't know anything about it. It's like, how, how have I never heard anything about this before? Um, and, you know, it's just, it makes you, it's one of those movies where you just, you just feel like you need to sit there in the theater for a few minutes afterwards and just kind of let what you saw sink in and process. It's, it doesn't feel right to just like walk out of the theater, get in your car and be like, all right, I'm going to go home now, blah, blah, blah. You just get on with your life. You know, like, you, like you need to, you need to take a pause after watching this movie. I felt the same way after even watching it the second time. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I didn't see it in the theater, Fantastic. but I certainly felt the same way on my, you know, on my couch. Yeah, that that I couldn't agree more. All right, Scott, my number three film. Uh, it is Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch. Um, Wes Anderson is a filmmaker that I've had sort of a complicated, I guess, history with where I, you know, at one point I would have said that I am kind of hot and cold on him as a filmmaker. Um, and. I still, you know, am a have some reservations about the very early films like Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums. I don't think I love them like a lot of people do. But at this point, I cannot deny that I'm a huge fan of the man's work and especially his work in the last decade. I think he's just made one great film after another. And I think that all has culminated with The French Dispatch, which is quite possibly my favorite of all of his movies. Um it's just such a lovely ode to storytelling and storytellers, um, which takes on this sort of, you know, meta angle, obviously, because Wes Anderson is himself a storyteller. And he has this sort of community of actors um, that obviously appear in a lot of his films together. And so, you know, you get the sense that he's kind of, uh, you know, it, it's it's a tribute to the New Yorker, the film as a whole, but he's also sort of tributing his community of people that he has, you know, formed uh, in the course of making all these movies, the editors and the crew members, and, you know, in particular, the actors um, that feel like this kind of family and, you know, the, the gifts that they are able to bring through their storytelling abilities. And we see that through these three different little anecdotes in the movie my favorite being the very first one the the concrete masterpiece um which is about this painter played by benicio del toro who is in prison um probably isn't that great of an artist just paints these kind of abstract paintings of his muse uh, who's the prison guard played by Leia Seydoux. um but for whatever reason this kind of buffoonish art dealer uh 
Julian Cadazio, who is played by a, a nothing short of incredible uh, Adrian Brody, um, sees one of his paintings, you know, wants to know who painted it. And all of a sudden, um, this guy is a, you know, a famous and highly sought after artist and all this pressure is being put on him to, um, to put out a new uh, project, new paintings. And, you know, it all sort of culminates with this reveal of, and I, and I won't spoil it, obviously, this reveal of how exactly he has gone about his next project, which is in an unconventional manner. And that scene is just uh, one of my favorite, you know, maybe my favorite scene of the year, um, the whole reveal at the, the prison of what he's done. And Adrian Brody's character coming, going from being absolutely incensed and running up to him and oh, I think it stinks. Um, and then, you know, a few minutes later, all of a sudden, seemingly, you know, the, again, he's kind of this buffoonish guy who's an art dealer, but doesn't seem to really understand art. All of a sudden, he's, he does seem to understand art. And finally, in this sort of unconventional thing that uh, the painter has done, it, it all becomes clear to him. Um, and again, like I said, everyone is doing A-plus work in that segment, but especially Adrian Brody. I think the, the comedy and eventually the pathos of his performance is, is on a whole nother level. Um, so I love, if it was just that segment, I would have loved it, but also, you know, two other excellent segments. You have this one with Francis McDormand and Timothy Chalamet about these sort of student protests, um, that I think has some really lovely moments. And then, um, you know, a lot of people's favorite is, uh, this last segment with Jeffrey Wright as Roebuck Wright, the food writer who, um, is telling the story of this police commissioner whose son gets kidnapped, um, and probably the most emotional of all the uh, the stories is that one. Um, Jeffrey Wright has a great moment where he talks about how he's kind of a lonely man, but there has the reason he's a food writer is because there's like always been restaurants at corners of the world and empty tables open for him, and it's you know it's just wonderful filmmaking and writing. I mean, the writing in this movie is just um, so articulate, and the the way that the the fact that the performers are able to perform this very, you know, articulate and wordy dialogue and verbose dialogue with such effortlessness and, you know, are able to give it all the notes that Wes Anderson is asking for, I think speaks so much to Anderson as a director that he can get those performances out of his actors. Um, I think this is the best ensemble of the year. Um, and I think, again, Adrian Brody and Jeffrey Wright are really the, the highlights. And um, again, also the closing moment of that um segment with Nescafe, who's the chef um and kind of reflecting on again i don't want to say too much but um reflecting on his career as a chef and it's kind of this very sad melancholy uh moment that then turns into a discussion between roebuck wright and bill murray's character arthur howitzer who's the editor of the paper um about whether it's an essential element of the story or not. Um, so I love like the meta layers of what's going on. Like I said, um, it's so much fun to watch Wes Anderson in his sandbox. The animated chase sequence in the thir third segment is just another fun flourish. Um, and it, you know, it just has that precision and symmetry that you come to expect from Anderson's filmmaking, along with his great sense of humor and I mean, I, again, I think there are generally um, gen, genuinely emotional and moving moments in all three of the segments. That seems to be the thing that's holding people back from this movie. It's like, oh, it doesn't have any heart, whatever. 
it has heart. It's just Wes Anderson's own particular brand of bringing emotion to a movie that is not going to work for everyone. Um, and that's fine. But this movie worked on every single level for me. I think it is pretty close to perfect. And I think it's my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, I saw this film, I think like a week or two before you did. And my immediate reaction was, this is just like so solidly Wes Anderson, like late, I don't know, more recent Wes Anderson is the way I would describe it. Like it's so solidly in the vibe of Isle of Dogs, of the Grand Budapest Hotel, the and, and Moonrise Kingdom, right? Like his more recent films. And I guess I am one of those people who didn't think that all segments were created equal in this movie. I, I do think that the second segment is is what lets the film down for me, which is that Chalamet Francis McDormand section. I think that I just I guess I, I didn't quite connect the way that I felt like I, I needed to or did with the other segments of the film. Uh, but I still think it's good overall. When I say solidly Wes Anderson, that is a compliment. I like 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 you, I like the recent Wes Anderson work, you know. I think I don't remember exactly, but Moonrise Kingdom, Grand Budapest Hotel. I mean, those were movies that were in definitely, you know, the top, at least my top 50 of the previous decade. Um, if not actually films we talked about in my in our in our top 10 list um, when we did that episode a couple years ago. So absolutely enjoyed it. Um, I do think that the first and the last segment they have there, uh, they create a duality that I find just really really remarkable like i think there's a there is just a ton of humor and irony involved to that first segment and there's a ton of heart in that third segment i think there's there's a wistful loving almost reflection that i think is going on in that in that totally. third piece and i and i kind of love i think this is something that i don't think you mentioned it but maybe i might have missed it um the sort of the sort of cartoon shift um for certain parts of that last segment, you know, on the, with the car chase. Yeah. The animated um, sequence. Yeah. 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 I, I really did enjoy the, the shift there. It's something that Wes does often. I mean, he's made stop motion animated films, uh, obviously. So he's done some animation before, but it, I likely just like threw it in there because you know what? He's Wes Anderson. He does whatever he wants. Um, yeah. I think the, the thing even more so than the second segment, or the second main segment that held the film back for me probably was, I just didn't connect at the at the outer layer of that onion right like the sort of the the bread of this wes anderson short film sandwich of the of the newsroom um the bill murray of it all i suppose didn't quite um emotionally connect with that and i think if i had connected more with that then i probably would have loved this film even more than i did it's definitely in the top half um of my list this year um uh, but didn't quite make its way to the top fair enough yeah what Almost made it to the top, Scott, but came in number two. Oh, I know, Scott. I am still agonizing. I talked about agonizing over the decision around uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, or sorry, not Judas and the Black Messiah. Excuse me. The Power of the Dog and Drive My Car. But I agonized about this film. And then what ultimately ended up being my number one and my number two is Nine Days, a film we skipped earlier. I did carve out the time to rewatch this film last night. Uh, just to confirm it. it, it was my number two before, so it didn't change. Um, but it didn't change because I was reminded about how freaking good <laughs> this film is. I mean, I, I saw this film in the theater over the summer. I've been wanting to see this since uh, I heard about this film coming out of Sundance 
in 2020. I, I don't remember if it was on my most anticipated list of 2020, but it, it was it was at least in my honorable mentions for this year. And it is a film that almost it almost escapes description. Every time I try to explain what this film is to someone who hasn't seen it, which is almost everyone, frankly, um, it, I just I can't yeah. quite find the right words to describe it. It is like a supernatural, but not really that kind of supernatural drama. That's just ex that's just exploring what it means to to be alive. Um, and it's it is mostly conversations and and experiences that are it's sometimes vicarious. But what does it mean for someone to really f like be and feel alive is what the film is most interested in talking about. And I just think what Edson Oda, who is first time feature film writer director, um, is is doing with his script and, and the direction that he's taking these characters in. To me, it, it it is able to bob and weave around being heavy handed and is instead able to subtly deliver and, and in a nuanced way deliver everything it wants you to think about as its audience. It wants you to think about what it means to appreciate being alive. It wants you to think about what it means to what it even means to appreciate being alive. And I think that through these interactions with between Winston Duke's um, Will, who is this person interviewing candidates uh, and ultimately the one choosing who will be selected um, to be put into the world and to be born into the world. Um, and this conversation, it ends up being about four, four main people, I guess he's talking to, but it starts out being seven or eight different people. Um, those like you're, you're, you're sort of getting that analysis and that reflection through these conversations and through their interactions. And I just find it utterly captivating. I think it's a slow movie. It, I mean, we've seen that it hasn't connected even with everyone who has seen it. I mean, some of our our, I wouldn't say our favorite reviewers necessarily, people who we respect and who we listen to in terms of film criticism, David Sims, Sean Fennessy, not fans of this film. Um, didn't mm -hmm. didn't really like them very much. Didn't really like it very much. But for me, I, I guess I just didn't see it the same way um, that, that they did. And I just was utterly captivated by A, from Winston Duke and, um, and the supporting performances from Zazie Beetz, who, of course, we talked about earlier with The Harder They Fall, another great year for her. And Benedict Wong, who plays this sort of um, companion to Will, who helps him in the interview process, named Keo. Um, Zazie Beats being one of the people that Will is interviewing, uh, named Emma. And the journey that they go on together um, and, and the things they learn from each other about their experiences, I just find they they just really are, are imbued with a lot of life. For, for a film that is frankly about people who aren't alive and is about the absence of life. Um, all it talks about is what it means to be alive. And in especially Emma, you can see the, the hope and, and the aspiration to like live and to, and to experience and to be alive. And you see that in multiple different characters um, who are being interviewed. And in will you have this person who, you know, this is not a spoiler, but who was alive and, and then was in this, in the afterlife as, uh, was selected to interview other candidates for being born. Um, you, you see like the deep concern with putting um, 
you know, erstwhile souls into the world, people who might not be ready for how ugly and Free nasty spirits. and hard the world can be. And his real hesitation on putting those people at risk, I think, is, is the way he might describe it. And I just think those conversations are some of some of the better philosophical discussion about life um, that, that I've come across in, in film and and the score. Uh, I mean, the score here, it's not something that I noticed as much the first time, but really on that second time, uh, the score from Antonio Pinto is just innervating. I mean, the thing is just like it, it utterly sticks in my mind. Um, and I don't know how I didn't recognize it as much the first time. Maybe it's just because I was so overwhelmed by everything else, frankly, um, mm -hmm. that I that I didn't notice it as much. But 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 that especially I just find really great. And then Wyatt Garfield, who's the cinematographer here, not always the most interesting cinematography, but there are certain moments in the film. You know, the, the very end of the film is one of them. And there's a few others along the way uh, in key climactic moments that I do not want to spoil in any way whatsoever that. It's clear that, you know, it's not a it's not a problem with not being capable or, or in framing a good shot. It is the hesitation to do it until it really matters in the film and to and to add an extra element into these key moments um, that are framed differently. And, and I think much more effectively in terms of delivering the emotional weight of some of these scenes. And you talk about scenes that are up there for moments of the year when you talk about Judas of the Black Messiah, although I do think that we decided we aren't able to talk about Judas and the Black Messiah in our Some Like a Scott Award, so that we won't be talking about that scene yeah. here. There will be a scene. I, I'm calling my shot right now. There will be a scene from this film in the last five minutes of this movie that, Scott, we will have to talk about it in the Some Like a Scott Awards. I mean, oh, wow. What what uh, what a scene that is to, to, to end the movie. Just incredible stuff. And um, I don't want to say too much more to spoil it, but Winston Dukes, as he beats... Benedict Wong, Edson Oda, who's directing and writing, just I'm amazed at what they were able to produce. Yeah, you know, you hyped this movie up for a long time, Scott, before I ever even saw it. Um, and so I didn't know what I was going to think, didn't know if it was necessarily my kind of movie. Um, it was. Um, this movie made my list at number seven. Um, I agree with everything you've said. Um, it is it is slow, but like, I don't know. It was just hypnotic for me. Like I couldn't yeah. take my eyes off of it. Um, once it, once it started, just cause it's, it's so unique. I mean, like this, this world, the premise of the whole movie is, is, I mean, it's kind of defending your life, I guess maybe is the movie that is the most similar to it and premise wise, but even that isn't quite the same thing. Um, and is more of a comedy anyway, but, um, yeah, I mean, the it almost like the the story almost plays out like this really sort of intense, somber reality show at times, right? Because it's all yeah. these people who are in this house, like, and they have to do like these challenges in a way, um, and then people are start yeah. getting eliminated along the way. Um, and so it's it's a it's, job application process. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch in that regard. Just the different personalities of all the people in the house and the moments when they get eliminated, like what, what is it that they, what's their reaction, you know, to? that, yeah. And then he, all, he, you know, he has this thing where he lets them experience one moment basically before they are gone forever. Um, and that's a really, you know, interesting idea. Um, 
yeah, I just I just think the whole idea of the movie and the way that it celebrates life, I think ultimately um, is is very inspiring and again it's a totally unique setup i think the performances yeah all three of them uh, i think yeah benedict wong is doing kind of underrated work but um winston duke the way you know his character you know keeps all of his emotions within until he doesn't um and zazie beats has the opposite of that you like you said the free spirit who just kind of um is very curious about um life and the world and what all of this means and um you know uh watching the interaction between her and and winston duke and those two competing personalities is where a lot of the the tension comes from in the movie that um i i just i frankly loved watching it is it's such a heady philosophical movie that i feel like i'm still processing a lot of it um but as just a visceral sensory experience i can't deny the impact that it had on me and it, and that that ending absolutely had on me um and, and with that, yeah and the, respect to that ending really quickly like that ending yeah talk about a film that knows when to end like the, it could it could have had yeah. like five like 90 seconds or a couple minutes longer to like i don't know try to like try to put a bow on it but like it just ended and i was like yes that is how you end a movie. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, but yeah, it's it's a singular experience, and I highly recommend. I mean, this movie's been out for a while now in VOD, um, but I just don't know that people know it's out there. Um, please check it out if you want to see something different. Um, I, I think it's one of the most original films of the year, and I um, was was very very captivated and glad that i decided to catch up with this one before we did our list because look it made my list it's a it's a wonderful movie and a very impressive um debut for edson noda all right scott we are getting close uh but first we have my number two film of the year somebody cue the in sync uh it is uh sean baker's red rocket um another movie i saw at the virginia film festival and uh I mean, from that first, from from that first moment, right? Like the credits open and we hear the song kick in. Uh, we see Mikey Saber on the bus. It's just like you know you're watching a movie. Like you know you're watching a real movie made by a real filmmaker. Um, and it just it just goes. And Sean Baker is so gifted. Like he is almost at the top of my favorite like current filmmakers now. Just with the strength of his last three movies, especially the last two, though, um, I think, you know, Florida Project, one of my favorite films of all time. Red Rocket definitely has the potential of getting there. And I just love his filmmaking ethos, like what he does with getting all of these untrained actors, um, you know, who make up most of the cast. I mean, uh, Simon Rex, who plays Mikey and Brie Elrod, who plays Lexi, are like the only actual actors in this movie. Everyone else is just people that he found and listening to the stories of how he found them um, are fascinating. I mean, like uh, Ethan Darbone, who plays Lonnie, which is, I think, a really, really uh, amazing performance, actually, in the movie and a really amazing sort of tragic character in the movie. Um, he was just like a chef uh, at some restaurant. Um, Brittany Rodriguez, who plays uh, Jade, who's the daughter of the drug dealer, um, 
she was just like walking her dog and Sean Baker and his crew were like circling the street where she was. And they first they wanted to just use the dog in the movie and then they just decided to use her. Um, and, you know, just all, all these kinds of stories like that. I mean, Susanna Sun, obviously, who has a larger role in the movie as Strawberry, uh, Sean Baker and his wife, Samantha, just saw her across the lobby at a movie theater. And he just like walked up and was like, hey, you want to audition for something? Um, and they got her in the movie. And he's done it the whole his whole career again. The, he did the same thing with Bria Venate and the Florida Project. And it, it just adds so much because he's so interested in telling these stories of people on the margins of America. And it adds so much when the people playing these roles are actually the people on the margins of America, right? They are not actors. Um, there is so much realism and in their performances because you, you know, you get the sense that they are just acting out their daily lives to some extent. And um, this movie, however, is, you know, quite a uh, opposite to something like the Florida project. Um, I mean, both movies are definitely about hardships, but I think obviously the Florida project has a very winning uh, main character in Mooney. Um, whereas this movie has Mikey Saber, who is just one of the more fascinating characters I've seen in a movie in a long time. Um, you know, he starts out and he's just this charismatic guy. He comes back into the lives of these people. He slowly wins all of them over because he's providing something for them. You know, he's providing something for Lexi and her mom, Lil. Um, he's paying their rent. He's, you know, just keeping money, keeping them financially in shape. You know, he's like this hero, mythical figure to Lonnie. He was this guy who like made it out of Texas City and, at, you know, made it in the adult film industry and now is back. Um, he's, you know, for Strawberry, she's like, he's like her ticket out, maybe. Um, and he, he means all of this these things to other people, but he's not concerned with any of that. He's only concerned with himself. He's, he's a narcissist and he sees Strawberry as like this opportunity to get back into the adult film world and bring himself success again. And he's really just using everybody else to, to get there. Um, and it's just fascinating to watch because Sean Baker, he has such a steady hand and like his control over the movie and over the character is just amazing because you he he's never forcing you in this direction, like down this path of, and this is the scene where Mikey turns evil, right? Like all of a sudden he's, you know, he's going to go rogue. He's going to turn heel. He's the same guy, the whole movie. It just takes a time for us to see it. And Sean Baker is, again, he's so in control that we see it exactly when he wants it, us to, and not a moment sooner and not a moment later. And I think that's just so impressive for a filmmaker to be able to, to guide the audience like that, where he's not making any big changes or anything. Like I said, the character is the same throughout, but we don't see it until the same time that the characters in the movie see it, right? That Mikey is, you know, he's self-obsessed and he's only... Uh, want, concerned about himself and you know i think this all has such a great larger context when you take into account that it's going on during 2016 around the election there's footage of trump scattered throughout the movie um i think it's just such a smart movie at explaining how people in these types of communities in particular can be won over by these hucksters and charlatans who you know promise them what they need promise them what they want and what they need to survive and these people feel like they're seen for once in their lives, even though they're in this sort of, you know, backwater part of the country and only to, you know, discover that it was just, it was just a, a means to an end basically for the said 
for fraud, fraud charlatan huckster whatever um and eventually they're just going to end up used like they have been really the, all this time it's also just such a fun movie to watch i mean by design they want you to to like mikey to find him charming to find him funny um and the movie is all of those things it is a hilarious movie it might be the funniest movie of the year um and simon rex's performance is amazing like you just can't believe that this guy hasn't been acting for so long like he's this live wire this manic energy that he brings to the character um is so perfect again for creating that oh this guy is just so hilarious and likable at first and charismatic and then all of a sudden it just wears on you and wears on you until you're just you're sick of him you just want to see him gone um so many little details i love in the movie like when he finally has to leave lexi's house at the end and everybody is cussing at him and they're trying they're physically forcing him out the door and he's like tries to go to the fridge of her house and grab a water and that just says so much about like here he is, like he has already taken so much from these people. He is, they have just want him out of their lives. And he's like, I'm going to try to take one more thing on my way out, just the water. Um, just so much in this movie. Um, I just, I, I just am in awe of Sean Baker's filmmaking abilities. Um, and I, again, like I said, with Mike Mills, I will be there front row for anything that he does next. Um, I think he is such an important voice. I think he is showing people and experiences that we don't get to see in movies and um, the manner in which he is doing so and the stories which he is choosing to tell about these people um, are, you know, again, important, vital, and they're not cookie cutter. They're, they're nuanced and, um, and, you know, very involving to watch. Like, I, I don't know what else to say. I just think he's an amazing voice and filmmaker and visionary. And um, Red Rocket is just yet another example of him, you know, keeping true to that ethos of his filmmaking style, but making a movie about something very different than he's made before and about a character that he hasn't really kind of depicted before. Um, and it's, a, it, you know, you mentioned people walking out like, I get it, but if you really think that this movie is endorsing any of Mikey Saber's behavior, then I don't know. That I kind of think that says more about you than it does about the movie because um, I think, uh, again, he's not preaching at you. He's not preaching at you at all. He's not wagging his finger, and he doesn't have to stop at the end of every scene to tell you that what Mikey Saber is doing is bad. But in his own very subtle, very nuanced way, he is obviously showing you that Mikey Saber is a bad person and that his actions have consequences. Um, and so if you're not picking up on that, I don't know what to say. I think some people just might not be just might not want to sit in a movie theater for two hours and watch a sexual predator. And for one way or another, I don't think that they necessarily even saying the movie is trying to endorse it. I think that you could walk out thinking that this is just not something that you want to watch, which is, you know, not not how I went into the movie sure. and experienced the movie. but um i think it's possible to want to walk out of a film and not necessarily um think it's endorsing a sexual predator but look this is a great film this was um uh, on in my in my 11 through 20 it was number 13 i think you know you mentioned that simon rex and brielle rod are like the only professional actors in this i mean 
Simon Rex was in like the scary, some of the scary movie sequels or whatever. But like, right, Brie Elrod's like only been in Shutter Island. Like, they're barely professional actors, even. Well, she's a the she's been in a lot of theater stuff. She's most mainly a theatrical actor. Sure, yeah, th that's fair. She's I, still, I was she's still films, a legit but, yeah. actor. But yeah, you're right. I mean, Simon Rex again. Even though he's not, he's an actor, like it is also this kind of great discovery, right? Where he was on he's MTV not raps, like yeah. he was on, in one of the scary movie things. But Sean Baker has like been a fan of this guy for years for whatever reason. Um, like it's it's a uh, it's pretty yeah. uh, crazy that it all led to this, and that he just happened to have the perfect role for this guy, and that it you know turned into this perfect you know the stars perfectly aligned for. Simon Rex to give one of the best performances of the year. Yeah, not not just that, but the whole thing. The whole thing. I mean, I, I don't know if you've have you had, was he was Sean Baker at your your screen of Red Rocket or or did he have a Q and A? Yeah. No. Um, no. I like wish. talking. Oh, yeah. I wish. Talking about this, movie, but I've listened to a how... ton of Q and As about this movie. Okay. Yeah, from this movie, yeah. Yeah. So you've probably heard this then, but like the fact that this movie wasn't even going to be made. Um, yeah, he had and, another movie that they were going to make and they just couldn't do it during COVID because so. of COVID. Yeah, because it's a much larger project that's going to involve uh, you know, a bigger, a bigger set, a bigger crew. And this is a small film they could make, um, you know, something something more of the ilk of the Florida project in terms of size and scope and whatnot. And right. it just happened. This came around. They fired it off. And, you know, again, they're using mostly non, you know, amateur actors if that's the right word to, to say it um, and again these people am, are amateur doesn't feel right no that's what i was about to say because amateur yeah. doesn't feel like the right word because that implies a certain level of quality but that's not at all what's on display here yeah i mean again like i said that ethan Gar garbone garbone who um plays lonnie i mean that's such a such a huge character for you know that what the movie is trying to say and the way that the tragic arc that that character has um i think is so much more realized because of the authenticity that ethan garbone Darbone, i forget what how to say his last name but um brings to that role so credit to him absolutely i don't feel like i have too much more to add honestly on top of what on top of what you said just because you've said it all but i enjoyed this film it's number 13 on my list for a reason all right, Scott, we've arrived. Your number one film of 2021 is going to have to wait because we have a clip first from one Brandon Bout, uh, who actually guested with us on the episode when we talked about this film. You've probably guessed it by now. Um, but let's hear the number one Dune Stan uh, talk about this uh, movie first, and then we will hear Scott, who is pretty close to being up there at Brandon's level, uh, talk about it as well. My favorite movie of 2021 was Dune, directed by Denis Villeneuve, based on the Frank Herbert book from 1965. And we've already talked so much about this movie on a previous podcast, but uh, just to reiterate, I think it does some truly amazing things, which is take something that was seen um, largely by Hollywood as unadaptable and manages to adapt it in an extremely good way. It manages to stay thematically consistent. It has great character portrayals. Um, I would say they're very accurate to the book, at least on my reading. And But regardless of the book, you know, it there are some truly great acting performances by the whole cast. And some of the of, of those performances actually, for me, enhance the original work, which is, I mean, how... I feel like that's the highest mark I could give this uh, movie. 
Um, it also manages to set itself apart from Star Wars um, and other things that um, kind of draw upon the book as, a, um, as an inspiration in the first place. Um, and it manages to kind of place you in this extremely alien world, largely thanks to Hans Zimmer and, you know, the cinematography involved. Um, and, yeah, I mean, what else is there really to say? It was a truly great movie, um, and I'm greatly looking forward to part two. All right, Scott, have at it. You're number one of the year. Well, yeah, I don't know if, if the clip gave it away or if you already said it, Red, you did. So uh, my number one is, of course, Dune. I talked about just a moment ago how I really felt like I slaved over the decision of making this my number one or nine days. It was a tough choice, but ultimately, I think what Denny Villeneuve and the entire crew and cast were able to do with Dune was just something that, that feels like an unparalleled feat of cinema. The, I mean, I think going back to our podcast episode about it, we talked at length, and I think this struck you especially, that when you're watching this film on the, on the biggest screen you can find, whether you see it in you know, just a normal theater or especially in IMAX, it just seems like they're doing things in this movie that just haven't been done before that you don't really understand or, or appreciate or realize beforehand that, that you can do with a movie. The, the, the sound design, the production design, the visual effects, um, and just the structure of the movie itself for those who are a little bit more familiar with the Dune, the original Dune book, the Dune franchise, etc. There's It just feels like they did the impossible, like they adapted it. It is not a perfect adaptation, but in many ways, that's what makes it so watchable and so and makes and 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 allows it to be appreciated as much as it has been, both from newcomers to the franchise like yourself. I mean, this was your number eleven that you talked about at the beginning of the episode, um, and for people like myself and Brandon, who you just heard from, who are more familiar with the franchise, who do have a great love for the franchise and in particular that, that first novel and to see how it takes what is great about the novel and understands, you know, Denny Villeneuve, Hans Zimmer, everyone who's doing the producing, Eric Roth, et cetera, who's making this movie, they understand what's great about the book. And they also understand that they don't have to do it, put everything into the movie to make it a great movie and the changes they make, you know, whether it's, um, sort of toning down certain elements uh, of the maybe the political intrigue or the philosophy or the religion in the book in exchange for a greater focus on the characters specifically timothy chalamet's paul um rebecca ferguson's lady jessica and um and jason momoa's uh ugh, duncan idaho so many names how could you forget a name like duncan idaho i mean yeah, I was thinking Josh Brolin, Sigourney Halleck. There's just so many names in this franchise. Um, I just I just think they they understood what they had and they made the most of it in a way that still felt spiritually true to the book. Like it didn't just feel like you're getting a watered down version. You were getting something designed for the cinema, designed for the big screen, um, which is complementary um, and not necessarily supplementary to the book. Uh, you can enjoy both things and appreciate both things in their own right. And that just was what felt like the feat. I mean, I've seen this movie like I think for three or four times, I think maybe four times now in theaters. I got to see it at, at its, you know, I think it was its North America debut or at least its U.S. debut at the New York Film Festival uh, back in early, early October. And 
I was <laughs> I was anxious about it. Uh, this was my most anticipated movie of the year. It was probably my most anticipated movie from the previous year, if not my number two. And it's one of those rare, rare, rare feats, Scott, where we talk about movies we're extremely excited about and they just fully live up to all of our expectations, to all of our hopes. Uh, I, I don't know about dreams. I don't dream that much, I feel like. But it, the dreams that I don't remember having, I think it lives up to those two. Uh, Timothy Chalamet just feels like the perfect Paul Atreides. I can't picture anyone else um, as that character in my mind anymore. And I think that's the biggest compliment you can really have for someone who is portraying a character uh, that is a, 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 of a, and an adaptation of a book that you love. Um, I don't know if you feel similarly about Saoirse Ronan as Joe March or some more Florence Pugh as as Meg or something like that with Little Women. Um, but I think it's a huge compliment for that. I think all of the casting, you know, the people I've already mentioned, but also Oscar Isaac, um, Josh Brolin, even some of the minor characters, you don't we don't see that much of in the first movie who will play a bigger part probably in the second film to come. You know, people like Stellan Skarsgård, who plays uh, the Baron Harkonnen, you know, people like two for two for the character's name, but Stephen McKinley Henderson is the actor. It just feels like everyone's firing on all cylinders and Denny Villeneuve, although he he just probably missed out on being my favorite director of the 2010s to Chris Nolan, just because Chris Nolan had just such an amazing decade. He's immediately showing up in 2021 and, and you know, laying, laying a claim to my favorite director so far for this decade. And it really takes a deep appreciation for the novel, for the source material to be able to do what he's done and and all of the q a's that i've listened to the one i the one i got to see in person but also the ones on podcast interviews on youtube that i've looked up i mean you can just like really tell how much everyone involved in this just like really loves and adores this book and wants just wants to make the best adaptation they can make i mean if you ever get the chance like the particularly deranged interviews that a uh, han zimmer gives talking about the the sound design and the score that he's like visualized since he was like i don't know like 18 months old or something that then he's like always dreamed of making obviously being hyperbolic uh with the 18 month old comment but he he's just someone who is very high on the supply that he created in sound um for this and when it's as good and as innovative and as original as the sound is in dune you know you, you can forgive him for his hubris probably um but yeah i feel like i've just rambled on and on I, I, you know stuff I, I will say my my one disappointment is not in the movie itself, but as usual, because I've gone the whole episode without talking to this, and I just feel like I have to because it's 2021. A review of 2021 would would be wrong without this. Just I cannot believe they put certain shots in the trailer that they did for this movie. I just cannot believe they put both worm shots in the trailer. It's unbelievable. Uh, when I saw those things for the first time on the big screen, they even though I'd seen them in the, in the trailer, they were still just sort of awe inspiring, huge, you know this is why we go to the movie type moments. I mean, you've talked, there's so many different kinds of moments that can, that can be qualified as that, but I just think that that is, is certainly one of them. I mean, I have the great fortune of being able to see movies and IMAX on one of the biggest screens in the U S near where I live. And, you know, I, I try to appreciate that as much as I can and, and getting to see uh shy Halud on, on the big screen was certainly one of the greatest highlights of 2021 for me. There's just so much more I, I could say, so much more I've already said on our episode uh, back in October um, when I'd seen it, I think maybe once or I think twice at that point. I've seen it twice more since then. It hasn't lost any of its edge for me on third and even fourth viewings. I think that there's even more 
nuance to mine out of some of these characters and just a, I just have a deep appreciation for everything that they were able to do and you know get, get back out there in the desert guys we need we need part two yeah i mean i was gonna say you may not have liked that the worm shots were in the trailer but the worm shots being in the trailer may have gotten us a dune part two uh because Maybe. it would have been hard to sell this movie like just due to the nature of what dune is um unless you put you know those more action oriented uh scenes and images in the trailer um i don't know I, I i mean i just don't know if the movie gets um the kind of attention that it did and look this wasn't like a massive success or anything but it was one of the bigger earning films of the year um and uh, it's the highest grossing movie that debuted day and day on hbo max right i'm not yeah i'm not misremembering that right that is the case no that's correct that's correct yeah. uh well I think I feel like we had this conversation before. Was it this or was it Godzilla versus Kong? And I don't remember if we came to the yeah. answer on it, but I, I, uh, it's I, one I of the two. I, yeah. I think it is Dune. I think that there was like a bunch of caveats on Godzilla versus Kong that that we had like gone the back worldwide and, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was like the largest worldwide, but Dune was the largest in the U.S. and worldwide doesn't really count because it's not day and date internationally. It's, mm -hmm. it's only in theaters internationally. Doesn't matter. I, I think Dune ended up being the largest grossing movie that debuted day and day on HBO yeah. Max. Anyway, I, I think it over it did slightly overperform. And um, you know, the reason the the result of that is that we got part two. Now I again I don't know how many of how much of that is people saying, Oh, this looks like a cool action movie with sandworms. I'm gonna go see this <laughs> even though I know nothing about it. It's sci fi tremors, baby. I mean, I'm sure that did. I'm sure that was responsible for at least some of it. So, um, you know, I yeah. guess the the option, the the choice going forward, Scott, is the one that you seem to have made, which is to just to not watch trailers. Um, yeah, but, look, I'm not going out of my way to not watch trailers, but I'm like, I'm going to go to the movies, and if they show it right before the movie that I'm watching, I'm not going to like close my eyes and put headphones on right. or something. I'm I'm not like fully psychotic in that way. But I'm not going to go like to YouTube and watch trailers. Online You're going to put anymore. your fingers in your ears. La, 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 la. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I should do that. Uh, I should do that whenever like some Marvel trailer is playing or something like that and piss everyone off around me. Do theater. it during the 355 trailer. You can't have the 355 spoiled for you. I've heard this. <laughs> I was actually thinking about doing it in the Morbius trailer next time I see it. Yeah. We'll move on. Um, but uh, other people have mentioned, been. sorry, I just need to mention everyone else in the cast first just because I feel bad not. Dave Bautista, Zendaya. Chang Chen, Sharon Duncan Brewster, who plays a gender swapped Dr. Leek Kynes. I think she's like actually particularly great in the film. I can't believe I forgot her before now. Yeah. She does a great job playing that role. Charlotte Rampling playing the religious leader of uh, Reverend Mother Gaius, Helen Moheim. And Javier Bardem is still guard. There's just so many people in this movie, Scott, who are all just amazing. Uh, David Desmalkian, RIP. Sorry for the spoiler. Everyone, he does die in this film. Yeah, okay. I think I've I think I've literally named everyone now. So yeah. just incredible. Incredible feat. Yeah, I'm not gonna say that any of the performances like blew me away or anything, but I think that um, you know, they all play their roles very effectively. Um, I think they're so overshadowed by the technical aspects of the movie. Oh yeah. They feel like Timothy Chalamet and Rebecca Ferguson are a little bit underrated in this in this maybe just because yeah. of how I mean, they get spectacular. The whole thing is like, I, I'm not, I don't know. I still need to like fi finalize my like awards lists over the next month before we do our some like it's got episode. I don't think any of them will be, 
and my best performances mm-hmm. of the year. But I also think that there is a case. There could be a case for them as well. But just because of the technical aspects, it's like it's just not the thing you're going to talk about when you're talking about Dune. Yeah, um, to- totally agree. I mean, again, I love the movie. It was my number 11. I think it just shows, again, we were kind of talking about this a couple of weeks ago, Scott, but our differences in the types of movies which to en- end up being our favorites because, like, I don't sure. disagree with anything you said. Like, I think I feel probably feel the exact same as you do about the movie and what a, you know, achievement that it is. Um, but it's my number 11, right? Uh, yeah. Just because. Instead, you go for the statutory rate movie. I understand. Yeah, exactly. Spoiler alert. Um, yeah. I mean, I've already <laughs> talked about one of them. So, yeah. yeah. I've already talked about Red Rocket. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Um, so, that's, you know, it's it's just interesting to note that that difference. But, I mean, yeah, Dune is, is phenomenal. I also cannot wait for part two. Um, you know, again, seeing this, in, seeing part one in IMAX was definitely one of the experiences of the year one i won't forget um my friend jared who i went to see the movie with i remember him turning to me like an hour and a half two hours in and going this is so good and i was like yeah it is um i mean that's that's what i said coming out of the movie i was like this was just 155 minutes or however absurdly long the movie is and i could have just i just could have gone straight through and watched two and another two and a half hours that's how good the filmmaking is and i can't wait there you know amc or like alamo or some distributor of like theatrical chain is going to do that that thing where they on opening night or something they, they show them back to back like you can go at like 5 p.m and see dune part one and then yeah. you can and you can you can put your put your money where your mouth is and then see part two at like i don't know eight o'clock yeah. or something like that this is and only be the there. beginning scott all right well one order of business left and i guess it's my number one film Scott, I thought it was going to be Red Rocket for a long time. You know, I saw it, that movie on October 30th. It just kept staying in my mind. I thought it was going to be the one. Um, but then two men came, two men named Paul came along. One of them uh, is the front man of a band called Wings, uh, who goes by the name Paul McCartney. Uh, and that band created a song called Let Me Roll It. And that song was used by one Paul Thomas Anderson um, to create uh, nothing but pure joy in uh, one Scott Harvey uh, during just one of the many transcendent scenes in uh, Mr. Anderson's film, Licorice Pizza, which is my number one of 2021, um, with a bullet. I mean, again, I walked out of the movie 10 out of 10 uh i knew that it had it had bested red rocket and i you know part of me knew from seeing the first trailer like this is going to be this could this could very well be the one um because it's just so in my wheelhouse in the same way that dune is in your wheelhouse um it is you know again it has all the things that i all the boxes that i kind of checked off when we talked about it a couple weeks ago you know it's a coming of age story it's very light on plot very heavy on vibes and characters it has these great 70s needle drops. It's set in Hollywood. Um, just so many things that I love in movies. Um, and when you combine that with the fact that, you know, all of these disparate pieces are brought together by, you know, one of our finest working auteurs in Paul Thomas Anderson. And um, the result is a movie that I just want to watch over and over and over again. I've already seen it twice. I don't know if I'll get to see it another time in theaters just because it's not going to be in theaters for much longer. Um, 
but um, it is going to become one of my favorite movies. And again, just one that I will feel like throwing on any time. Um, you know, I, I think of the, all the movies we've talked about, the maybe the closest uh, comparison point is something like the worst person in the world, right? Because um, these characters in the same way uh, as uh, Julie and the worst person in the world is, is are trying to just sort of figure it out, figure out growing up, figure out being becoming an adult. And I think specifically in Licorice Pizza, this movie is kind of about two, these two people are trying to cling to the last moments of their, their childhood. Um, and of course it's, they're in very different positions, right? Because you have Alana who is in her mid twenties um, and she is just trying to, to, cling to one last, you know, grasp of childhood and free and the freedom that comes with that, uh, because she doesn't, she still doesn't really know what, uh, she wants to do. We see her trying on a lot of different hats in the movie, working different jobs, being with different men. Um, but all, you know, like a magnet, she is always drawn back to Gary and to Gary's escapades. Um, and, you know, eventually realizing in the end that that is what she she wants to do. And, um, you know, that's the way that she can sort of maintain this last again, this last gasp of of childhood, of freedom, of um, being sort of insulated from the, you know, kind of dark darkness and scariness of the real world that we see played out in, you know, different aspects of the movie, whether it's, you know, Benny Safdie, and uh, his, you know, relationship with Joe Cross's character and all, all, all the turmoil that that causes, whether it's, you know, the crazy sequence with Bradley Cooper as John Peters um, and, you know, how tense that gets towards the end of that scene when they're having to uh, back down the, the mountain and the van with no gas. Um, all the glimpses that we see of the quote unquote real world are kind of scary and uh, you understand why alana isn't quite so ready to embrace that fully yet um and then you know you also have you have gary who is um you know getting older and he is 15 and he's on the cusp of breaking through to, to adulthood um and you know he's trying to cling to like this childhood crush that he has uh which is alana and he's trying to cling to you know again the the not really having to have his life figured out yet and you know getting involved with all these different business schemes selling waterbeds starting the pinball palace all these uh you know different um you know different ventures that he that we see him attempting he can do all of these things because he's still you know a kid but um he's not going to be for too much longer um, and so again, it's about these two people who are kind of clinging to the last gasp of childhood, um, and their trajectories are kind of opposite each other, but they are meeting in the middle, literally and figuratively in this movie. Um, and it's just so much fun to watch them interact from the very first scene, right? There's a lot, you know, it's, I think the whole scene is one take, um, you know, where they meet outside the school and they, um, you know, have uh, this conversation that flows as they go into the the gym and eventually 
Um, you know, the scene ends after about eight or nine minutes of conversation. The dialogue is great. Again, the filmmaking is great. The one take just really puts you right there in the moment. And you just know from that first scene that you're in for something special. Um, and yeah, like, like I said, it's just so fun to watch them interact, to see the shenanigans that they get up to. It's an unpredictable movie. I mean, that sequence with Bradley Cooper is classic PTA balanced right on that knife edge between, you know, something sort of exciting and fun and something scary and tense. Um, and it just, you know, shifts on a dime uh, in a way that isn't jarring, that, you know, feels smooth and natural. Um, like it, you know, it was possible all this entire time. Um, and, you know, I think that speaks to, to PTA's mastery. Um, and obviously the two lead performers in this movie are spectacular. Cooper Hoffman, um, you know, definitely ably filling the shoes uh, that his father left behind when he passed away. Um, his father having acted in many of Paul Thomas Anderson's films and, you know, Alana Haim with one of the most unforgettable debut performances in that I've seen in many years, um, just exploding onto the screen um, with so much charisma. Uh, it's, it's kind of unbelievable just to watch what a confident and natural performer she is. I mean, I had some idea again, from being a fan of Haim, from seeing them in concert and just watching them in interviews and how they interact. Uh, but I couldn't have expected um, quite the level of performance that we're getting here from Alana Haim in her very first time on screen. Um, plus the supporting cast, uh, you know, is just filled with these, um, amazing scene stealers, whether it's Skylar Gisondo as the child actor who, um, you know, Alana has a brief fling with, or, um, you know, Sean Penn playing the sort of old school William Holden type, uh, Hollywood actor, uh, Bradley Cooper, I already mentioned this woman, Harriet Harris, who has one incredible scene where she is interviewing Alana for like an audition, an acting audition. And, um, you know, is just kind of a cuckoo talent agent. Um, everyone, Tom Waits, you know, everyone just makes the most of like their their one moment, uh, their one scene in the movie. Um, and it just, it adds so much to the world that, that PTA creates. And again, the world is just one that you want to get lost in. You want to just, uh, keep living in. Um, and you want to, in so far as, you know, Gary and Alana are together in this world, because again, when they're separate or when we're seeing glimpses of the real world bleeding into their sort of fantastical escapades, um, it's not necessarily pretty. Um, but you know, what is, I think so nice is, and, and lovely is the way that they come together in the end and decide that, Hey, you know, we're going to have to figure this out eventually, but we're going to do it together. Um, and that's, that's the most important thing because, you know, we may not know a lot, but we know that we enjoy being around each other and we're at our best when we're around each other. Um, and that's probably the most important thing. Um, so yeah, licorice pizza, again, it's that there's, I, I wrote a lot in my last letterbox review, um, that is, you know, more articulate probably than what I've said here. So I would direct you to go read that review for more of my more substantive thoughts on this. But as I said, when we reviewed the movie, ultimately the substance is, is secondary, um, uh, as to why I love this movie so much. It's really just about 
the experience and the fun of just watching this movie, um, watching these characters interact, getting lost in this world, um, and just not wanting to to leave. Um, I, I think it is at the very, very top of PTA's, you know, stellar filmography. Um, and I couldn't have asked for for more from this movie or for a better capper to a great movie year of uh, the great movie year of 2021. Because again, like 2019, which was such a great year, there was just one movie that came along at the very end, um, late December, and just kind of cemented it as an old timer and, you know, swept right there to the top of my list. And, you know, that movie was obviously Little Women. And I think Licorice Pizza is probably my favorite movie to be released since Little Women. So it had to be number one on this list. Yeah. I mean, look, we, we did an hour of this movie just a couple weeks ago. So we have some pretty recent fleshed out thoughts about this film. I obviously don't share your opinion about the ending necessarily, but we go into a lot of detail on the podcast about the ending. I think it, one thing that you said at the end that I think resonates a lot with me is that the substance is secondary. And, and I do think to really love this movie, the substance has to be secondary because I think the substance is where you can get a little bit bogged down and maybe where I got bogged down as well uh, with certain elements. But in terms of the vibes and the feelings and the emotions that it gives off, I mean, you're not going to find any disagreement with me about the emotions that this film is able to elicit and the the joy I think this film is is able to induce in its audience. It's just a filmmaker with a really crisp understanding of what it takes for cinema goers to have a good time. And I think that he's able to capture that joyful spirit, if that's the right way to describe it, this sort of like youthful exuberance, um, you know, nothing can can really bring you down type vibe. Um, and in the moments that he's displaying on the screen, you don't see every moment, right? Like this film is, set with scenes over the course of a year or, or more even right um and, and you don't see maybe the if you really just sat down for a second and thought about the lives of these two characters you don't see really the down moments all that much there, there are there are fleeting glances of that but it's more concerned with reminding you of the highs of being young of being youthful and, and having the world before you um with the belief that you can do anything with it if you're around the right people, if you do the right things and it doesn't concern itself too much with the in-between. And I think that it makes for just a really huge pleasure of a film. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get the chance to see it again in theaters just because I've got a lot going on. That's not new movies in January. Um, but as soon as it goes out on VOD, I think I will check it out again just to see if, if I still feel the same way. As when I watched it the first time, and I think when I watched it the first time, I think that the thing that I I think ties back to what I was just saying a moment ago is that I did I felt this internal conflict about the movie, right? Of like I have some problems with it, but wow, it's just such a good time. Like when the when the highs are hitting, you know, they're as high as any high you can probably get in the theater this past year. Um, yeah, and I'm curious to see how how and it grows on me over time if it stays the same, if it changes one direction or another. Um, you know, Little Women, uh, a movie that I I'd say I liked more than this movie when I first when I first saw it. You know, I've rewatched it a couple of times now. It continues to grow on me. 
um, more and more. Look, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's ever going to reach get Scott there Harvey echelon. <laughs> it's not going to reach the Scott Harvey stratosphere of of being in love with it, probably. Um, nor does it have to, though. And so I wonder if licorice pizza charts the same route over time, but it also can be its own thing. Lots of lots of positive things to say. I mean, Alana Heim is is definitely a revelation in this movie. Cooper Hoffman is great as well. And yes, these one-off scenes with, I mean, Skylar Gisondo had me on the floor, basically, yeah. in, this, in this movie. Very, to the extent funny. that was possible in my crowded theater, I was on the floor. <laughs> uh, Bradley Cooper, same deal. Um, and that's not to, to take anything away from the likes of Sean Penn or um, you know, whoever else you want to list in the cast. Yeah, I think to use the cliche, like, you know, talking about the substance being second, uh, you know, I stand by that. But also the style is the substance, right, to, to some uh, degree in this movie, I think, because it is it is so hard to make a movie that is stylized like this, that is so aimless, I guess, that is so dependent on the relationships and the characters and all of that driving along the narrative what narrative there is more so than you know traditional plotting i i definitely enjoy this movie more because of the style than because of the substance maybe but i think the style is the substance on some level it's just one a wonderful movie and i can't wait to revisit it for years to come i think we did it it was you know as lengthy as ever but uh i wouldn't take back a second of it uh i very much enjoyed getting to to talk about our top 10 films of the year. Anything else you want to add about your list, the movies of 2021 uh, before we close things out? Yeah, I'll, I'll have to take some long reflection about whether this year or 2019 was better for me. Thankfully, no one's asking me to actually give a verdict on that yet. There's still a couple movies I want to see. Cyrano is certainly one of them that does not have even a limited release, it seems like. Yet, uh, I mean, yeah, I don't I'm know sure what's going has. on with that movie. They keep pushing it back. And I, I'm I mean, I, I don't know what the Oscar rules are. Like, I would have thought I would have been able to see it in New York because I think that it has to show for a week in New York in the in the calendar year in New York and L.A. to qualify. Maybe I missed the week that it was showing here. I don't know. Uh, it is coming out sooner or later. I want to see that. I would also like to see a couple others. I doubt anything besides Cyrano has a chance of breaking into my list. Maybe a hero, which is another foreign film uh, uh, from Asghar Farhadi, which I think just came out here actually yesterday in New York. But I feel like I've seen almost everything that I've wanted to see this year. That there aren't too many gaps like in previous years, like that we got as thorough of a of a read for at least for me. I guess you are missing out on some of the international features still, which luckily you're going to be able to rectify in the next few weeks. It sounds like, which is amazing. Um, but yeah, just pleased with how well this year turned out after slightly disappointing first six or I will call it seven months. Yeah. And like I was kind of saying at the start of the episode, I just feel like, I mean, even 2019 was that way to some extent. That's just by the nature of the release schedule and the types of movies that get put out early in the year as opposed to later in the year. We had in game in 2019. Well, sure. But yeah, I mean, the types of movies that get put out early in the year as opposed to later in the year um you know i think a lot of years are going to be like that but yes scott it was a great year um like you said i do have maybe a couple more to catch up on than you but i think i'm going to be able to do that recent uh soon 
Um, and it's mainly those foreign films. It's, you know, Parallel Mothers, the two Hamaguchi films, Petite Maman. Um, and then, you know, just a couple of random things like Little Fish, which um, Aaron sure. mentioned earlier in the show, which I would still like to to watch as well. So, uh, yeah, it w- I think we did a good job, though, of being thorough, though, on our 2021 releases. So I feel feel very good about my list being as comprehensive as possible. All right, Scott, that'll do it for this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Where can our listeners find you on social media? At Shelton 2013 And I am at Scarvy Dent. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and all of 2021 in the life of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, if you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget, don't forget about our Patreon page uh, at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Even if you can't support us over there, though, Uh, We hope you will rate, review, subscribe, like, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And, of course, we hope you'll be back for our next episode on which Scott and I will be moving on to 2022 releases and discussing the long-awaited Scream sequel, Scream 5, as I am calling it, even though it's not the official title. The fifth Scream film uh, next week from the directing team of Radio Silence. Uh, But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey, taking us out today with a final clip uh, honoring the best movies of 2021, the one and only Mr. Clint Page. We'll see you next time. Hello, Scotts. It's me, Clint, uh, your old pal. Um, Full disclosure, I have hurt my back very bad, and I am on pain medication. In my head, this voice memo uh, is is good, A+, but... Uh, Execution-wise, only time will tell when I listen back to it on the episode. Um, but uh, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. My letterboxed list looked pretty barren for the year 2021. Uh, the first movie that I went back and saw live in theaters was Cruella, which I actually liked, but it's not my my top pick for 2021. Um, I, you know, reserve your judgment, um, whatever you, you know, whatever you think about this, uh, medium or my, my decision is totally fine. It's your opinion and you can be wrong in your opinion. Uh, but my top pick for a movie, which again, it's questionable if it's a movie was Bo Burnham's Inside. Um, big Bo Burnham fan, never seen him live, but I would love to. Uh, I think he's brilliant. I think that he's hilarious. Zach Stone is going to be famous. The TV show that he was in, is uh, it's on Netflix, and it's really funny. Um, but uh, inside, what it was a surprise to everyone. They didn't know it was coming. And if you follow the Twitter discourse, a lot of people didn't realize that they needed it. But the, the songs are catchy. They are Grammy-nominated, if not Grammy-winning, um, so there's that, um, and it, it's, uh, it just kind of showcases what a comedy special can be. I don't think that anyone else could have done something like that, and quite frankly, I don't think anyone else um, should. Comedy is meant to be enjoyed uh, as a group, but uh, if you're going to do it a certain way, this was the way to do it. So my pick is Bo Burnham's Inside. I told Elisha this, and he said, that's not a movie, but go off King. 
So, you know, go off, King. 